The digital rebellion is here. Old money is out. New money is in. Celebrities like Spike Lee, Megan Thee Stallion, LeBron James, and a whole lot of others have appeared in ads championing the virtues of crypto. It's been hyped pretty well by athletes, entertainers, you know, so folks that look like us, right? That do things that we do, that talk the language that we talk, that share some of our, our common struggle. And while Terry is not completely anti-crypto, this hype does worry her. The folks that can stand to lose the least are the ones that are gonna get hurt the most. And there are no guardrails around this right now. From a wave of high-profile Super Bowl, Super Bowl ads to a full-on crypto crash in less than a year, crypto, or digital currencies, have now lost $2 trillion in value after peaking at $3 trillion in November 2021. On Wednesday, the company Celsius became the third major crypto firm in two weeks to file for bankruptcy. This past week, I spoke with Andrew Chang to unpack what's behind this latest crypto crash. He's a crypto consultant and former CEO of Paxos, a New York-based financial firm and technology company. For the unfamiliar, I think it might be instructive if you first explain what crypto is and why it's been such an attractive investment vehicle for so many people. So cryptocurrencies is a new type of financial asset. Uh, that's powered by blockchain technologies. And it's a way to store and move value on a decentralized network. Now, why people are super excited and have been investing in cryptocurrencies as a financial assets is because they believe the technology is interesting and valuable. And as the value of the network increases, so does the price of the currency that powers it. So what accounts for this crash. I mean, as I understand it, there was a crash back in 2018 where the largest cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, lost about 80% of its value. This crash is different in terms of magnitude and the cause. What's the deal? It's important to um, paint the picture over the last couple of years where the price has risen a lot. You had apps like Robinhood and PayPal uh, enable people to invest in cryptocurrencies. You had a greater awareness of uh, cryptocurrency, and then a greater availability of capital through stimulus checks or low interest rates. That's what led up to the price being so high. What led to the downfall in this recent crash is uh, partly due to the greater economic downturn. And then secondarily, you've seen a number of crypto companies that have recently filed for bankruptcy. Many of these crypto companies uh, took on too much risk, and that risk led to them imploding as the price went down. I always understood it. The value proposition of crypto was that it was supposed to be insulated from the broader economic trends. This crash would suggest that that's not the case. Yeah, I think it's not realistic to think that cryptocurrency or any other type of alternative asset is immune to being completely divorced from the broader economic uh, picture. When you have a long enough economic downturn or big enough economic downturn, you're gonna see that affect not only uh, traditional financial assets, but financial assets like cryptocurrencies and frankly, all parts of our lives. So that has been the hope uh, for many people that you could operate a different financial network. Uh, but the reality is it's all intertwined. As you mentioned, novice traders, amateur traders have suffered seismic losses. Some people 
losing at all. They put in a ton of money because they were looking for you know quick, sizable returns, and the timing of it you know just meant that they lost a lot of money and they lost it quickly. Yeah, I think with any investment strategy, it's important for people to consider uh, their current financial situation and their goals. But anytime you're investing in new technology, um, a more volatile asset, you're going to see greater risks with greater returns. And so some folks have been looking for greater returns, but they ignored the greater risks. But what about people who say that crypto is a scam and this latest crash just proves it. You have companies like Celsius, uh, which declared bankruptcy. They won't let people withdraw their funds. I mean, you know, you've spent a lot of time in this world. Is crypto legit? Yeah, I think crypto is going through the same things um, new technologies go through at the start, just like the internet went through a lot of uh, innovation cycles where there were internet companies that tried different business models that didn't work out. And so it's not that crypto itself is a scam, it's going through the growing pains of any new technology. And you see regulators finding different ways to regulate and finding new problems with the way that people are interfacing with the technology. The technology itself is in a scam. When you talk about uh, regulation, President Biden, as you know, back in March, he signed an executive order calling on the federal government to examine the risks and benefits of cryptocurrency. Is more regulation the answer, do you think? I think it's inevitable. Um, you know, if you think about what regulation is, is regulation comes went to protect consumers. And when you have situations like you've had in the past couple of months where companies have taken on too much risk or haven't been playing uh, by the rules, that's when regulators come in to try to help establish rules. So I don't think regulation is the answer per se. Uh, as you had have companies that do operate um, in a way that is good for consumers, uh, there's no need for regulation. So, um, you know, given the current uh, hiccups in with some of the companies, you're going to see more regulation coming in uh, to help provide guardrails for companies. Andrew Chang, thanks so much for your time and for your insights. Thank you. The gay rights movement is changing everything. There was an exchange during a recent Senate hearing about abortion policy that set off a furious side debate. It was less about abortion and really more about language. The whole exchange is too long to repeat here, but this is the part that set off the Twitter threads and think pieces. When it got heated between law professor Kiara Bridges and Republican Senator Josh Hawley, when Senator Hawley noted that Professor Bridges used the term people with a capacity for pregnancy rather than women. I want to recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic, um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing that. Wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancies? So I'm one, I want to note that one out of five transgender uh, persons have attempted suicide. So I think it's important Because of my line of questioning? Because so we can't talk about it? Because denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist I'm is denying dangerous. that trans people exist by asking are you? you if you're talking are you? about women are you? having pregnancies. Do you believe that uh, men can get pregnant? No, I don't think women can get <laughs> so pregnant. So you're denying that trans people exist? 
This exchange got a lot of attention, but it's just the latest in a series of emotional, often angry exchanges and commentaries we've seen lately over the use of terms that many people increasingly prefer because they are deemed to be more inclusive, but which others are vocally decrying, arguing that these terms alter, even erase what it means to be a woman. Now, seeing all this reminded us that this debate isn't exactly new. Back in 2014 on NPR's Tell Me More, we hosted a series of discussions with a group of women that centered on a California law allowing transgender students to choose bathrooms and sports teams based on the gender with which they identify. Conservative columnist Gail Trotter was one of our guests. She spoke for many in the audience and, of course, infuriated others when she expressed that these changing norms made her uncomfortable and conflicted with her beliefs. I think first we need to be gentle with one another. And part of what I really enjoyed about our conversation last week when we went off the mic is that we could just be real with each other and share the experiences that we've had. In research, this, Massachusetts also has a similar school policy that California has now just adopted. And as part of that policy, it calls for disciplining children who are not calling transgender children by the pronouns that they want to be called by. And I think that's really troubling, not only for the children who are transgender, but also for the other children who are not experiencing that. And we try to be gentle with each other, but it's very hard when the, the goalposts are moving all the time. And to say that children could be disciplined because they aren't saying something that to their mind and their eye conforms with nature is very difficult on these children. And so for me, Pushing that into children who are preschool age or lower must be ideologically driven. So we wanted to talk about where we are and where we may be headed since this conversation eight years ago. So we called Mara Kiesling. She was also part of that series of discussions. She's the founding executive director of the National Center for Transgender Equality. She's moved on to other activism in the trans community, and she's with us now. Mara, it's great to have you with us once again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So obviously we wanted to talk with you because I would say you're one of the founding mothers of the transgender rights movement. I just wanted to get your reaction to the exchange that took place in the Senate earlier this week between Professor Bridges and Senator Hawley. Is there something in particular that stood out to you? I watched the video like nine million other people, and um, it wasn't two people being gentle with each other. It was, you know, Senator Hawley, who, you know, is, is a trash talker, and he knows how to get attention, and he, you know, he's running for president, and so he's going to do anything to get attention. And he he was trash talking. And I think Professor Bridges picked up on that and responded to it. And I don't think either of them were being gentle with each other. A lot of people are in this place of feeling not just confused, but aggrieved right now. It, that wasn't the only exchange that speaks to this question of language. Like earlier this month, the New York Times columnist Pamela Paul wrote about language. She wrote, quote, even the word women has become verboten Previously, a commonly understood term for half the world's population of the world had a specific meaning tied to genetics, biology, history, politics, and culture no longer. In its place are unwieldy terms like pregnant people, menstruators, and bodies with vaginas. Now, I don't think she's running for president. I don't think she's a you know far-right conservative activist in the mode of a Josh Hawley, but she still has this feeling of something being taken from her. And I wondered, how do you understand this? argument that her lived experience as a woman is being erased. I'm presuming you've heard this before. Sure. How do you respond to that? It isn't all zero sum. There are some good people who are really, really afraid that they are losing something. 
they may be right, they may be wrong, I may disagree with them. But again, if we're trying to win them over, and if we're not doing that, then what the hell are we doing? Oops, sorry. <laughs> but we have to understand that people do feel zero-sum about some things, certainly about human rights. I don't know why, and I don't know why we stopped talking about the need to not think of it as zero-sum. Just because some people are no longer being mistreated or who, who don't want to be mistreated any longer doesn't mean that other people have to be mistreated. But it feels that way. And part of how it feels that way is when people are attacked for trying. Uh, believe me, I do not in any way think that uh, Senator Hawley was trying his best to understand things. He knew exactly what he's doing and he's very good at it, and he knows how to bait people. But we have to get past this everything zero-sum. Before we let you go, what, what do you think would make it better such that we could continue to talk about this or try to return to talking about this or maybe start talking about this with mutual respect and acknowledging people's dignity? And some people do have good faith at least reasons that they consider to be good faith for having a different point of view or not wanting to accept certain language or embrace it. Do you see what I'm saying? What, what would make yeah. it better? Well, boy, I can't believe I'm going to just lean on Gail Trotter here, but we have to be kinder to each other. We have to be kinder to people who don't agree with us. We have to be kinder to people who are just wrong. We have to be kinder to people who, who fall for Senator Hawley's, you know, bullying. We, we just have to be kinder and we have to be educating people. And we have to be educating them in a language they understand. That was Mara Kiesling. She's the founding executive director of the National Center for Transgender Equality. She's since moved on to other activism related to uh, these issues. Mara Kiesling, thanks so much for talking with us once again. I appreciate it, Michelle. Good talking with you. And it was hot. It was so hot. It was, it was like a 95, 100 degrees in the shade. The wind never blew. And they say that New Orleans has humidity down there, which kind of cools us off, that's bullshit. It was un, it was death heat. Inside the convention center was so stifling hot, people tried to stay outside. Hot as hell, 100-something degrees. It's hot. It was very, very hot at that time. It was 97, 98 degrees. It was hot. And the heat radiating off of the highway yeah. at night was intensely hot. It's hot as hell. That was the worst summer. I mean... That, that was, there was some, I mean, that, that heat was ridiculous. Man, hot as heck in here. It was beyond Africa heat. If Africa heat was anything like that, like I said before, and I'll say it again, they keep saying go back to Africa, hell no. Some 60 million Americans are facing triple-digit temperatures today as extreme heat blankets much of the country. And as these baking temperatures become more common due to climate change, what does that mean for our long-term health? Here to help us answer that question is Dr. Ari Bernstein of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Hi, Dr. Bernstein. Hi, Juan. How are you? I am well, although it is very warm here in Washington where we are. I want to start by asking you, from a physiological perspective, how does the extreme heat, like the temperatures that we are seeing and feeling today, affect the human body? It affects it in several ways. One is it makes us sweat more, and that can make us dehydrated, and, and our organs don't really like being <laughs> dehydrated. It can also just directly create more heat in the body, and when you know our body gets too hot, things don't work normally. You know We're designed to regulate our temperature, and if there's too much heat outside and our body's ability to dissipate heat can't deal, 
um, the body temperature rises and that makes our hearts and our lungs and our brains uh, and, and even our kidneys and other organs not work well. And so what we see as a consequence of those things is certainly people who have existing heart problems, lung problems, kidney problems, uh, even mental health uh, issues, uh, they get sicker. And even for people who are in generally good health, uh, the heat can be really dangerous if we don't pay attention. Based on your research and what you have seen, are, are different sorts of people more often exposed to extreme heat? Are there differences along, say, race and class and age lines? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can't talk about any issue related to the environment where you don't see disparities. So we know that communities of color, particularly Black Americans and, and Hispanic Americans, live in parts of cities that are much warmer than surrounding areas because they lack green space. And that is a direct consequence of redlining, which was codified by our government going back to the 1940s. It's no longer legal, of course, to do that, but the, the consequences in terms of heat exposure are real. And, and to be clear, the warming that has occurred in those communities because they are paved over uh, and have no green space is far more a result of that, what we call heat island effect, than from climate change. But because the warming has been so much because of how we have built our communities, mm -hmm. that means we can reverse it. That means we can make great strides to preventing harm and to advancing health equity when we are strategic in how we think about transforming urban environments. You are a pediatrician and your research looks at heat-related illnesses in young children. What should parents be watching for? The, the most important thing I can say to parents is heat you know, risk is real, but it is not a reason to keep children uh, from being outdoors. I think we need to balance what are immense benefits, you know, particularly in the summer, of children getting out, exercising, doing all those things, with being careful about um, temperatures that, as we know, as this current moment in time makes abundantly clear, are much higher than they have been. And let me underscore that point. A child born in the United States today is probably going to experience something like four or five times as many dangerous heat waves than a child who was born in 1960. And that is because we have filled the atmosphere with greenhouse gases from largely burning fossil fuels. And so we have to recognize that we have to take climate action to protect our children's health. And that is, you know, we, we can certainly try and do our best to keep children safe when it does get too hot. But I, as a parent, as a pediatrician, I don't want us having to think every day of the summer whether it's safe for our kid to be outside because of the heat. And I don't think anyone else does either. That is Dr. Ari Bernstein from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Juana. Great to be with you. Cities across California are tightening water restrictions as the drought drags on. But those restrictions are not hitting people equally. While some neighborhoods are turning brown and dusty, others are as lush as they've ever been. 
Kaylee Wells from member station KCRW reports. Listening to a police scanner might sound like a strange hobby. 445, you can cancel. But not to Ben Quo. In his free time, he also investigates public databases that measure things like wildfire damage and tree growth. That's how he became a self-appointed water cop. One of these things that you can look at is called moisture index. After the drought restrictions went into effect, he noticed something strange from a satellite he was monitoring. Rather than just this big smear with blue and red and, and yellow, you can actually go in and look at a specific property um, and see what it looks like. A household that's not watering the yard might show up orange on the satellite data. One that's watering daily will show up blue. Quo found an entire neighborhood lit up bright blue in the city of Camarillo, about 60 miles up the coast from Los Angeles. We went to check it out and found a gardener mowing a green lawn. They've been watering now uh, very recently. I think the sprinklers must have been on a few minutes ago here. Quo stands inside a neighborhood called Leisure Village. It's a 55 and older community. When you look on the satellite map, all this strip here, and we can probably walk a little bit into the neighborhood, is all bright, 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 bright blue, more so than anywhere else in the county. There's no sign of drought here. Why? That's because um, they are using the reclaimed water. It's one of the few neighborhoods that can siphon water from a nearby treatment plant. It's cheaper, plus it comes with a huge benefit. Currently, we're not subject to any restrictions on using the non-potable water for turf that we have. Chuck Kiskaden is president of the board at Leisure Village. He explains they're not breaking the rules. They're just lucky enough to have access to recycled water. It makes up the majority of their water use. We could tap into it into the agricultural areas to use the non-potable water for all of our irrigation needs for the turf and the plants. But just a few blocks away, it's a much different situation. Uh, we are very reliant on uh, state water. Deborah Gallegos with the city of Camarillo says residents are only allowed 15 minutes of outdoor watering once per week. Three violations mean $600 in fines. A fourth violation might mean the city takes your water pressure away. We do have a water patrol that actually goes out the, during the day and the evenings at this point and uh, monitors the residents' usage. Camarillo realtor Sandy Seekin says the lucky residents with recycled water access have a major advantage in the market. So you have greener grass, so you have more curb appeal. So the buyer, the buyer is going to see that, and of course you're going to buy something that's prettier. Seekins herself isn't so lucky. She lives in another part of town. Well, I started giving away certain plants that took a lot of water that I couldn't, I could not um, keep alive. One that isn't free from the toll of California's drought. If your question is, do I feel that it's fair? No, you, your plants cannot survive on one day a week, 15 minutes a day. It's just impossible. That inequality is a short-term solution. Another inequality, some more affluent neighbors just pay the fines. One long-term solution may be to supply more people with recycled water. Until that happens, this neighborhood remains an enviable water use unicorn. For NPR News, I'm Kaylee Wells in Camarillo. I'm talking about South Carolina. Thinking about South Carolina. About South Carolina.
Daniel. Well, 200 years ago, one man made history by planning an uprising to free slaves right here in Charleston. Our Kennedy Bug talked to some people who want to make sure his legacy lives on within the community. Kennedy? Hey, Tessa. It all started in 1822 when a freed man named Denmark Vesey planned an uprising to free slaves right here in Charleston. The uprising became known as the most planned and organized rebellion in history. All week long, three organizations will partner together so the community can forever know his name and his impact. I think uh, as I grew up, Denmark Vesey's name was always in whispers. Denmark Vesey planned one of the most well-thought-out uprisings in history. The plan included freeing the slaves in Charleston and killing the slaveholders. This was important because Vesey was a Charlestonian himself. Vesey was not able to carry out the plan after word of it leaked. Unfortunately, Vesey is not as well known as other civil rights activists. And each time I would talk to people at various tours, and maybe nine out of ten people would say they do not know who Denmark Vesey is. Bernard Powers, the director for the Center of the Study of Slavery in Charleston, blamed the lack of knowledge of Vesey on the reluctance to start a discussion on slavery. And so in order to talk about him and what he did, you have to talk about the institution of slavery, uh, a subject that many school districts uh, are very uh, reluctant really to take up. To honor his legacy, the Gillard Center has partnered with Mother Emanuel AME Church in the International African American Museum to celebrate the 200th anniversary. And so to have that have happened 200 years ago today here in this very city, it feels extraordinarily me meaningful for our community to um, engage with that story and with this national hero. Today marks the beginning of the week-long events to honor Vesey. I think it is our hope and our prayers after having discussions in the panel that people leave uh, and we contribute to the community, they leave with a better understanding of the brutal truths and the repercussions that slavery had uh, on this country. Tonight's panel also starts the Gillard Center Raising the Volume series, which will allow teachers in the public school system to pull all of the recordings of the events to start that discussion about VC's impact. Kennedy Buck, live in the studio, ABC News 4. Thanks, Kennedy. And that three-day event includes tonight's Truth Be Told panel at 7.30. Then on Friday, Anthony Hamilton, R&B singer. And wrapping up the weekend on Saturday, a free afternoon concert called Orchestrating Freedom. And Saturday night, a comedy show featuring D.L. Hughley. All events will be held at the Gilliard Center. Is this great or what? For the next 72 hours, we're going to live off what nature sends our way. See that stream? That's our drinking water. See those berries? That's our breakfast. The National Park Service is striving to incorporate more contemporary black history into its storytelling about America. The Park Service has a growing network of national historic sites across the Deep South that recognize achievements and atrocities during the Civil Rights Movement. Now the service is exploring sites elsewhere in the country, including possibly a Black Panther Party national historic site. NPR's John Burnett has this report. On a spring day in Oakland, California, Frederica Newton, the widow of Black Panther co-founder Huey P. Newton, stands next to a bronze bust of her late husband. It's in a wide landscape median in the part of town the Panthers called home. The Black Panther Party is an American story, and that's the job of the National Park Service to tell the American story. Once upon a time, former FBI director J. Edgar Hoover 
called the Black Panthers America's greatest internal threat. A half century later, as perspectives have mellowed, the Huey Newton statue could eventually be part of a national historical park. Other possible stops, the former Panther Party headquarters, the locations of the group's free medical clinics and free children's breakfast program, and the spot where Newton was murdered, all of it patrolled by a park ranger in a flat hat. The idea of a Black Panther Party National Historical Park still rankles some. In 2017, the Park Service had to cancel the idea after police groups complained to President Donald Trump that the nation was commemorating a violent separatist group. It's one of the most misunderstood legacies of this party. It wasn't hate. It wasn't a nationalist organization. It was not a racist organization. Our mission was to fight oppression for all oppressed people. But with the Democrat in the White House, the project is back under study. I'm encouraged. Um, there's a hunger for knowledge of what it was that the Black Panther Party did. This is just one of the ideas the Park Service is pursuing as a way to diversify its storytelling about America. There are currently about 40 sites in the park system referred to as African-American experience sites. They include the Birmingham Civil Rights National Monument in Alabama, the Selma to Montgomery National Historic Trail, and the Medgar and Murley Evers Home National Monument in Jackson, Mississippi. That's the house where the NAACP state field secretary was murdered in 1963. It may come as a surprise that the National Park Service that gave us America's, quote, best idea, the majestic landscapes of Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon, is highlighting chapters of history that some Americans are ashamed of. And now's the time, we can quote Charlie Parker, now's the time to really begin addressing these stories and looking at them in a candid way. Alan Spears is Senior Director for Cultural Resources at the National Parks Conservation Association, a nonprofit that advocates for the national park system. I think there's a great deal of pain out there, and it's the pain that comes from having unresolved history and history that's been deliberately overlooked and neglected. Even more African-American experience sites are on the drawing board. In addition to a possible Black Panther Park, NPS is studying sites that remember the 1964 murders of three civil rights workers, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner in Mississippi, and the 1955 lynching of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black youth accused of offending a white woman in Mississippi. Alan Spears, who's black, says if these historic designations become a reality, they'll create opportunities for visitors to have conversations about race and white supremacy. And sometimes that makes them controversial to some people, but I think critical to folks like myself who think that we gain much more than we lose by taking a direct look and a candid look at our history and our past. Like he says, some of this history is unresolved. Case in point, the National Park Service erected a remembrance of the Freedom Riders beside the highway outside of Anniston, Alabama. It marks the spot where, in 1961, white segregationists firebombed a bus that was carrying the interracial Freedom Riders through the Deep South to protest segregated bus station waiting rooms. Earlier this year, a car rammed the NPS sign and sprayed mud all over it. Yet there's more reconciliation than resentment these days. Charles Person, now 78, was one of the original Freedom Riders. He urged the Park Service to commemorate their ride. He remembers a trip he took back to Anniston and how the town is now promoting the Freedom Riders National Monument. When we came, a gentleman showed up, and he was a grandson of one of the Klansmen, and he apologized 
for the beating that uh, they gave, you know, when they, for setting their bus on fire. And we sat there and we were so amazed at the things that the town was trying to do. One of the first civil rights sites in the NPS network was the Martin Luther King Jr. National Historical Park, established in 1980. It's grown into a major tourist attraction in Atlanta. Visitors can see his birth home, his church, the sprawling visitor center, and the World Peace Rose Garden. But this is not just a place to learn about the life and times of MLK. For the people of Atlanta, the King Park continues to connect them to the spirit of nonviolence and the struggle for racial justice. When Mandela passed away, people came here. Uh, when Congressman John Lewis passed away, people came here. Marty Smith is chief of interpretation education at the King Historical Park. George Floyd, people came here. So that just shows you how powerful this site is. The night that Barack Obama was elected 44th president, Smith says he walked out onto the grounds and found hundreds of people who were drawn to the King Historical Park to celebrate. That, he says, is living history. John Burnett, NPR News, Atlanta. I would have thought uh, we would have taken advantage, or at least especially uh, people that have children. Uh, it seems like I've been hearing more of complaints from um, uh, black parents. Um, you know, I work in telecommunications, and um, so I deal with a lot of the uh, customers firsthand. So I know all of the stuff that's going on as far as with um, the whole situation around um, being able to get um, and deliver internet service uh, to uh, black people. Um, you know, the pandemic kind of exposed all that. Um, the lack of internet access uh, most black people have. And it just seems like um, I just heard more complaints. Um, we don't know how to maximize, um, even in, in chaos, um, there is a silver lining. And, you know, at least um, in the beginning, I noticed that when we were in lockdown and people were having to um, be forced to stay home and their kids home you didn't have any hardly any stories of you know black kids being terrorized at school or anything like that I mean you you hear some little things on zoom calls but nothing like we we had grown accustomed to over the years over the past 13 years uh, the stories that we hear uh, of the verbal physical uh, assaults that these kids are having to be subjected to um, like I said, I don't have kids, so I may have my um, biases, but I just, you know, I have nieces and nephews, and I, I just I just don't see a, a lot of black parents just trying to um, take advantage of out of chaos, um, you know, to some degree, because I guess some of us are still walking around confused. Parents and educators are concerned about the adverse effects the pandemic has had on student achievement. Elementary and middle school students in the U.S. saw sharp declines in math and reading scores compared to 2019. And the pandemic widened the gap for students of color. Amalia Tramaro is the Education Policy Director for Unidos U.S. The organization is tracking how Latino students fared during the pandemic. She joins me now. Welcome. Hi, Aisha. Thank you for having me. I want to 
dig into some of the data that you guys have found. I mean, it, so it shows that reading percentiles fell nine points for Latino third graders compared to five points for non-Latino students. And it's worse for the math scores where it fell 13 points for Latino students. You know, your group saw this downward shift across all grade levels. How else did the pandemic hurt education performance for these students? We know that the disruption and the swift shift to virtual remote learning really had an impact on Latino students and their families because at the onset of the pandemic, when everything really changed overnight um, and students, parents and educators had to go almost 100 percent remote, we knew that a third of Latino households did not have high speed Internet and about 17 percent of Latino households did not have a device. So even though we know that many schools stepped up and provided the broadband and the devices, the computers and the tablets over the next few months, we knew that that had a deep impact on students to be able to continue to participate in that learning. And, and, you know, some Latino students have, you know, other things that they have to deal with, like English not necessarily being their first language. What about those English as a second language learners? How were they impacted? Yeah, we were particularly concerned about our um, English learners, and we knew that according to a study that the Department of Education had released back in 2019, that English learner teachers had not received the same level of professional development in digital instruction as general teachers, so that's one issue. At the same time, many English learners come from families uh, with lower income who may have had even less access to, to broadband and devices. And was access to broadband, was that like the main challenge that was preventing the learning, the remote learning? I mean, I know with my kids, it was just difficult to learn when you're not in the classroom. Like it's just such a different right. experience. Right. That that was one issue, the lack of connectivity and devices. And also the fact that many families um, did not have the, the tools and the training, right, to be able to actually be able to navigate those platforms and help their, their children at home for the parents that were able to spend time at home because Latino families, many parents and caregivers were essential workers and many of them did get sick. And unfortunately, we saw um, for students of color um, disproportionately lost a parent or caregiver due to the, the COVID um, and so you had also older siblings stepping up to help their younger siblings. And so then we saw impact on the high school level students as well, because we did see um, a decline in high school graduation rates for Latino students after having achieved an all-time record high high school graduation of 82% in 2019. Can you tell me a little bit more about what the academic picture was looking like before the pandemic? Because you said that there was like a record number of Latino high school graduates. Sure. Um, over the last 30 years, Latino students have been making progress in some key areas, including the high school graduation rate, but also higher achievement in math and reading as well. And, and English learners who have made um, strides in terms of their, their language development and academic outcomes. So we had seen some of those um, key milestones reached while we also knew that there were inequities that continue to persist in the system. What can educators do? What can policymakers do 
to course correct, to account, as you, you talked about, not just for the pandemic, but for the, the gaps that already existed even before this. So in the report that we released, um, we do include a set of policy recommendations. And you know, one big opportunity is all of the federal relief funding that was provided in the last couple of years to states and in turn to local education agencies. And it's really important for those decisions to be informed by the data and making sure that that funding is equitable, not only to the students and the schools with the highest needs, but making sure that we have, you know, the students that struggle the most, students with disabilities, English learners, um, students who attend high poverty schools to get the supports that they need to be able to, to make that recovery. That's Amalia Chamorro, Education Policy Director at Unidos US. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much. now, which you can see um, at the bottom of your screen there, a disciplinary hearing has been has concluded for suspended Stanbosch University student Tian Stutoy, who was filmed urinating on the belongings of a fellow student now, Babara Ndawana, who was the, the university. In fact, the, 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 Babalo was the victim. Now the university has expelled Dutoy. Let's speak to Babalo's father, Mkuseli Kaduka, who joins us now on the line. Tata, thank you so much for your time this evening can you confirm that you you know you you do know of this expulsion uh, yes but I uh, just received the news now now that um, the hearing the, the decision of the hearing has come out and that uh, this whole Detroit has been expelled mm, and how are you receiving the news um, we are very uh, ecstatic, and um, this is what we've been calling for from the onset. Um, we are still, however, going to part the way forward with our lawyers concerning the criminal case as well. And before we get to, to, to the criminal case, let's talk about Baba Lohav. Um, you know, how is he... Um, when it comes to this particular decision, is he also relieved? Oh, yes, very much so. He's relieved and feels vindicated uh, as well. And a part of the statement um, from the university talks about, um, you know, saying that they want to restore the dignity. It's important for them to restore the dignity of, you know, their students and to uphold the rule of law. Your son's dignity took quite a knock with this particular incident. How is, is he doing on that front? Um, he, he, just, he was home for a couple of weeks. Um, which, uh, he, that was a much welcome uh, time for him away from all the heat of Stellenbosch. Um, He's still going through some counseling as well. Uh, so, yeah, he's saying things easy, day by day. Has it changed him in some way? 
surprisingly, he he's taking this um, in in his side. He's matured. He's grown <laughs> over the past couple of weeks. You know, he's very matured in his handling of this matter. Mm. And let's talk about the criminal case then, because you do say that you are now going to be looking um, towards that particular avenue. Have you received an update from the SAPS on the charges uh, that you laid, I mean, of breaking and entering, um, you know, when, when, when it comes to this particular matter? Have you received an update at all? Um, they have been dragging their feet as well. Um, it was the last time we heard that they said that the docket was with the prosecution authority and it was up to them to decide whether they will, is it a procedural case or what. So hope, we are hoping that uh, with this outcome, it will give further <coughs> strength to our decision that this, this boy should be prosecuted. How has this uh, this delay by the SAPS uh, impacted you as well as a parent? Um, I was not surprised at all. Um, these kind of things, I knew that they would drag on um, because this is not the first time that this has happened to a black child in Stellenbosch. And... Um, it's through these delays that all of these kind of things start to fade and fall away. So we have been prepared for a long and protracted battle. And there was, uh, of course, reports that, uh, you know, were suggesting that there was going to be a meeting between yourself and Tian's father. Have you been in contact since then? Has anything happened between the two of you following that meeting? There was never, ever going to be a meeting between mm. the, me and Tien's father. There was, um, as I, I had been pointing it out in my previous interviews, mm. um, I expected him to reach out to me within those first few hours of the incident. But then he totally disregarded that, so... It showed that uh, he did not. He, he was not taking this matter seriously. All right, Dada, let's leave it there with you for now and see if you do get an update from the SAPS on how this case um, is unfolding because there were two prongs here, um, you know, that the, the family was looking to settle this matter on uh, because you'd remember uh, Babalo actually said that uh, Tians had broken into his room. He was sleeping. He didn't know at the time. Um, that even someone could be inside of his room and when he asked him what he was doing he simply um you know ignored him so there the, the was that part of the criminal proceedings and as ubabaga babalo says that they have not received an update on that particular case so thank you so much for your time that is babalo Dwayana's father mkuseli gaduga billy holiday i sing your blues Bet your life against me and i swear to god you lose it motherfuck the cops we're still singing for st louis Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Black Americans made up 14% of the U.S. population, but accounted for more than half of all homicide victims in 2019. 
the most recent year with available data from the FBI. And Missouri stands out as the state with the highest number of Black people killed in homicides per capita. That is according to the latest annual study by the Violence Policy Center. Josh Sugarman is the group's executive director and joins me now. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on. So, Josh, this is the sixth year in a row that your organization found Missouri to have the highest rate of Black homicide victims. And the state saw that rate jump 45 percent between 2014 and 2019. Any indication as to what is behind that stark increase? The only thing that we can look at is the data we see from the FBI. And so what we've seen probably the most striking factor is involvement of guns in Black homicide victimization. In Missouri, 95% of Black homicide victims were killed with a gun. So across the board, we find in this study, it's not just in Missouri, but across the country, the role played by firearms. But in certainly in Missouri, it's striking. I grew up in that state, and I have to wonder, when you look at Missouri and other states, how much of this is about accessibility of guns by purchasers? How easy it is to obtain a gun in certain states? When you look at Missouri, the state has virtually no standards beyond the federal standards for gun sale and possession. And that is not unique among some of the states that we've looked at in the study that rank in the top 10. What's just as important is the fact that in Missouri, communities and jurisdictions that want to address this problem on a local level, say, for example, Kansas City, St. Louis, they can't do so because what's known as a statewide firearms preemption, which means that no jurisdiction can pass a gun law tougher than the state standards. You know, we should point out here that your group advocates for gun control and you're highlighting access to firearms as a problem here. What do you think it's going to take to affect any sort of lasting change in a state like Missouri with the type of legal landscape that you're discussing here? I think in Missouri, it depends upon, first of all, the ongoing activities of grassroots advocates, community members, and other stakeholders to make sure their voices are heard, which they are, and they work very hard every day at this, you know, preventing this type of violence. But on top of that, that the policymakers have to recognize that the state is in a crisis. When you look at the numbers compared not just to the national levels, but to other states, it's just shocking. And so there's an understanding that there's a crisis that needs to be addressed, but it hasn't reached the uh, state policymaker level yet. Missouri is also home to one of the highest profile killings that fueled the Black Lives Matter movement. That is the police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, which is near St. Louis. What do you say to Black communities that feel that they cannot trust law enforcement and to those who may feel safer having a gun as a result? While that reaction can be understandable, the fact is that regardless of a person's race or ethnicity or sex, guns are rarely used uh, in self-defense, whether in justifiable homicides or in non-fatal prevention. And an unfortunate reality is that in the past two years, the gun industry has focused on uh, marketing to communities of color, Uh, Black Americans, uh, Latino Americans, Asian Americans in the context of COVID and episodes like you describe. This study is based on data from the year 2019, which is the most recent year from which data is available. What do you expect data from 2020 and 2021 to look like, particularly given that those two years track with the COVID pandemic? It's hard to say what the trends will reveal, but unfortunately, you know, we just know what other 
agencies have reported, the trends being reported, but we would not be surprised, obviously, if these numbers do go up. Josh Sugarman is the executive director of the Violence Policy Center. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on. It's an arrest of a Mid-South man and the medical care he needed afterwards. Thanks for joining us this evening. I'm Joe Burke. I'm Joy Redmond. The arrest happened Saturday in Oakland, Tennessee, in Fayette County. And according to the affidavit, Oakland police arrested 25-year-old Brandon Calloway after they say he did not stop at a stop sign and refused to stop for officers. The confrontation between Calloway and the officers ended with Calloway bloodied and in need of stitches. Action News 5's Bria Bolden shares what the young man's attorney said this evening and a response from police. Bria. Yeah, well, Joy, Brandon's attorney believes the type of car he was driving made police pull him over. Now we want to warn our viewers tonight, the video and images you're about to see are disturbing. All over a what purported to be and what is alleged to have been a traffic violence, uh, which turns into a um, head injuries, hospitalization, and um, significant pain and suffering. This is 25-year-old Brandon Calloway today, healing. But attorney Andre Wharton says he's still in pain. According to a police affidavit, this all started Saturday after Oakland police say Callaway drove through a stop sign. Police said Callaway was also clocked for speeding, 32 in a 20 mile per hour zone, leading officers to initiate a traffic stop. But they say Callaway would not pull over. We have not watched the squad car, dash car cam to see when they actually activated their lights, blue lights and sirens, but they followed him for a while. At some point, they initiated their lights and sirens. Eventually, the pursuit ended at a home on Laurel Glen Drive, where police say Callaway ran inside. Brandon obviously was trying to figure out, hey, what, what's going on here? Why are you all following me? I'm not violating the law. Uh, they commenced to speaking with Brandon or trying to speak to him. He's clueless as to why they continue to pursue him when he didn't believe he had done anything wrong. When officers concluded that Callaway needed to be detained, they say he ran from him inside the house. Officers say they kicked in two doors, used a taser and a baton to take him into custody. Brandon, stop resisting! Brandon, just stop resisting! Tony, just stop! Just stop! No! Just get on the ground! Get on the ground, Brandon! Get on the ground! Just remaining hopeful that, you know, what happened to him will come to light and that Oakland will acknowledge the Oakland police and the town of Oakland and that, that his story will, will serve as an example for other police departments and other officers who are trying to do the good work of protecting and serving citizens. So. And police charged Callaway with evading arrest, resisting disorderly conduct, failing to stop at a stop sign, and speeding. We reached out to the Oakland Police Department for an interview or comment on this story. The police chief told us they had no comment. We're also working to obtain police dash cam video and body-worn camera video of the incident. In studio tonight, Bria Bolden, Action News 5. Yeah, 
today is our legal roundtable, and there's a lot to discuss. Well, joining us now to discuss those matters and so much more are three top attorneys. Sarah Swadish specializes in labor and employment law. She was recently with the law firm Sadeh Harper Westoff. She's now in private practice at the law office of Sarah Swadish. Sarah, congratulations on that move, and welcome back. Thank you so much. And we're also joined today by Brenda Talent, a longtime attorney. She was previously a partner at the firm now known as Brian Cave Leighton Paisner, where she specialized in tax law. Today, she's CEO of the Show Me Institute, which advocates for small government and market solutions for public policy in Missouri. Brenda, welcome back. Thank you for having me. And last but never least, today we are joined by Eric Banks. He's a former state prosecutor and city counselor for the city of St. Louis. He's now in private practice at Banks Law. Eric, welcome. Howdy, howdy. Now, the Eighth Circuit also weighed in on two other qualified immunity cases coming out of Missouri in this past month alone. One of them involved two St. Louis brothers who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. James Hartman and Ryan Hartman were partying in Soulard um, the night that a St. Louis fire captain and his passenger were shot near the Anheuser-Busch Brewery. The brothers were captured on surveillance cameras driving near the scene. That was enough to get them charged with multiple felonies. Overall, each did more than a year in jail and under house arrest. Well, Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner finally dropped the charges. She said that further surveillance footage proved they couldn't have done it. And that's when the brothers sued Barry Bowles. He's the police officer behind their arrests. They noted that the victim had reported being shot by a black male in a black hoodie. Well, these brothers are white. They were also driving a different car than reported by witnesses. They said the officer ignoring those facts violated their Fourth Amendment rights. Now, the district judge threw out this lawsuit, and now the appellate court has agreed that this should be dismissed. These brothers can do a year in jail, and the government's allowed to do that. Sarah Swadish, what do you make of that case? Yeah, I find it. I found it disheartening. Uh, we talked about there's there's two prongs to the test. Was it a knowing violation of, of a clearly established law, or what was the violation known to be? A, you know, was the incident known to be a violation back when it happened? Um, in this case, the Eighth Circuit said a reckless violation is not a known constitutional right. Mm -hmm. I found that incredibly troubling. Uh, the officer who, who issued the subpoena, not the subpoena, but the warrant for the two white individuals, the it was in the file that the two individuals who should have been arrested or who were suspects were African-American, and this officer went out and issued warrant for two white guys. And so the Eighth Circuit's opinion, where they say a reckless violation is not a constitutional right, really encourages uh, officers, government officials, to be willfully blind to the facts. Oh, we didn't know. Uh, we didn't know about that fact. We didn't know about that issue. And the Eighth Circuit just came in and said, well, if they don't have personal knowledge, then it can't be reckless. Wow. There was a dissent in this case. The justice who wrote that dissent wrote, quote, Detective Bowles did not conduct the most basic investigation before presenting probable cause affidavits to the court seeking the search and arrest of appellants. Uh, they list many things he didn't do. He didn't listen to the 911 calls, didn't listen to one from a witness who described the shooter also as being a black male, didn't talk to the officers who responded to the scene, um, didn't review uh, reports, didn't enhance the surveillance footage. These guys end up in jail for a year, and it turns out that constitutional at this point. Eric Banks. I think I'm appalled by the decision. I just don't find any method to the madness. It's a travesty as far as I'm concerned. Uvalde, what it means. It has been weeks 
since the harrowing events of Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Weeks since 19 children and two of their teachers were mowed down by a young man bearing an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle who let loose hundreds of bullets into a school. From day one, the cops portrayed themselves as heroes who selflessly defended the lives of the children and teachers until phone cams showed them in the hallways of the school, waiting, 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 as these children were slowly and methodically slain, while cops waited a few feet away. How many cops? More than in a parking lot at Dunkin' Donuts. Several dozen, at least 19, then 20, 50, over 100, almost 400 cops. It took almost an hour and a half, actually 77 minutes, until the threat was neutralized. 77 minutes of death of babies. Seven-year-olds, ten-year-olds, bright, aspiring kids, some who dialed 911 for help, not knowing that the cops were already there. From the first several minutes, they were there, armed with semi-automatic rifles and shields, waiting. What good were they? How can any parent feel safe sending their child to school, ever. Why should they ever trust police again? In love, not fear, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. The police were well, responding to happen, a call about a broken fire like a hydrant when they pulled over the suspect here, like here on Timadir like Lane. The officers apparently mistook the suspect's safety orange wallet for a gun and shot at him 118 times and beat him. Woodcrest isn't a place where people dwell in the past and focus on the negative like who shot at who 118 times or who cracked whose ribcage. That's all media hype. A racially charged and expletive-laced audio recording leads to the firing of Lexington's top cop. During a special call meeting, the Board of Aldermen vote to fire Sam Dobbins. Arena Science' Quentin Smith has the tales from that meeting and reaction from the community. Lexington city leaders spent more than an hour in executive session discussing this issue. The board voted three to two to fire Dobbins effective immediately. It's a decision many say is a sigh of relief. Terminate Chief Sam Dobbins from the position of Chief of Police with the City of Lexington. This is the news that many in Lexington were hoping to hear. Today, the community of Lexington, Mississippi received justice. The board made its decision just days after former Lexington police officer Robert Lee Hooker released an audio recording from April. He says the conversation is between him and Dobbins, who at the time was his police chief. Hooker accuses Dobbins of creating a stressful and toxic work environment. I just got to the point where you're not doing the people right, you're not doing me right, so therefore let me expose you for what you are, who you are. And that's how it happened. We obtained the audio. 
In the recording, Hooker says you can hear Dobbins using the N-word. Let me explain something to you. Come on. You're going to get in some in the street, and there's only going to be one man fighting for you. All right? Yeah. That's going to be me. Okay? Don't ever ruin that. All right? Because these other they'll let you for Okay. As well as him speaking about people he's shot and killed as an officer. I killed 13 men in my career. Okay? Justified. Huh? Ooh. In my career, I have shot and killed in the line of duty 13 different people. You just shot so many Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Justified, bro. Okay. Ask around. They, 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 they ain't gonna tell you no. Uh, got a big corn shootout, man. A cornfield over there. Jimmy Dale Thomas, he worked it. Justified, bro. I shot that. Okay? I don't give a f I don't give a f if you kill a with a cold blood. Do it, right? Do you hear what I'm saying? No. I will articulate to fix the problem. And I'm the only man in the business here that's smart enough to do it, I promise you. Wow! Hey, yo, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. Let me explain something to you. Come on. You're going to get in some shit in the street. And there's only going to be one man fighting for you. All right? Yeah. That's going to be me. Okay? Don't ever ruin that. All right? Because these other they'll let you for out. Okay? As well as him speaking about people he's shot and killed as an officer. I killed 13 men in my career. Okay? Justified. Huh? Ooh. In my career, I have shot and killed in the line of duty 13 different people. You just shot so many Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Justified, bro. Okay. Ask around. They, 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 they ain't going to tell you no. I got a big corn shootout, man. A cornfield over there. Jimmy Dale Thomas, he worked it. Justified, bro. I shot that 119 times. Okay? I don't give a I don't give a if you kill a with a cold blood. Do it, right? Do you hear what I'm saying? No. I will articulate to fix the problem. And I'm the only man in the business here that's smart enough to do it, I promise you. But that's not all. Hooker says Dobbins also made negative comments towards the LGBTQ community. I don't talk queers. I don't, I don't talk I, I ain't got nothing for you. Comments that many are calling disgraceful. Once we heard it, we were just appalled. It's like, how can an, uh, a chief, an officer, use that kind of red rhetoric when you're sworn to protect and serve us. After the board voted to fire Dobbins, investigator Charles Henderson was named interim police chief. We've reached out to Dobbins multiple times today following the board's decision. We're still waiting to hear back. Quentin Smith, three on your side. I want to talk. That's joint.
Well, last year, we saw murder convictions overturned for Buffalo men who had served decades in prison. A judge ruled that prosecutors back in the 1970s did not properly turn over to the defense evidence that would have cleared them. Channel 2's Ron Plants explains those men are now suing the city and Erie County, claiming misconduct by police and prosecutors. As soon-to-be 63-year-old John Walker is assisted to the steps of Buffalo City Hall, he's marking this upcoming birthday as a free man without any parole obligations, but he feels pain as he spent 22 years dating back to when he was a teenager behind bars. Hey, thinking back as far as when I was 16 years old, me and my friends, and how our life was stolen from us. That followed his conviction as part of the group now known as the Buffalo Five for the 1976 murder of a then 62-year-old neighbor who was killed after he left this Fillmore Avenue bar called the Golden Nugget. Now Walker and one of his co-defendants, Daryl Boyd, are seeking justice in the form of a federal civil rights lawsuit against the city of Buffalo, Erie County, and police detectives from the 1970s case. Boyd spent 28 years behind bars. You know, I like to just I always ask myself, man, why was you kidnapped? And then framed. And then after that, uh, unlawfully detained. And then after that, put through suffering, pain, and misery. Their attorney now says prosecutors did not follow proper procedure during the 1977 trial for the men. So they were required to turn over the evidence pointing to someone else as having committed the crime. They were required to turn over evidence that their witnesses had recanted. Uh, they were required to turn over evidence that the crime occurred after their main witness, Tyrone Woodruff, was already in a taxi cab with John Walker going home. And the trial transcripts and the testimony of the, of the uh, defense lawyers who still remain and of our clients will prove that this evidence was not disclosed. District Attorney John Flynn says he opposed the motion to vacate the men's sentences while the judge did state some photo evidence was not turned over properly, Flynn says this about the lawsuit's misconduct claim. It's categorically false. And I, and I, I have the, the judge's decision right here in front of me that, that, I, that I just reread again here. And, and the judge, in setting aside the verdict, specifically says that the prosecutors did nothing wrong, okay? That the judge specifically says that there was nothing hidden, that everything that was known was given to the defense lawyers. All right, so that, that issue is just simply not true. Douglas describes the moment as she was at the checkout line when a gunman opened fire inside the Topps Market on Jefferson Avenue. That's when we heard pop, 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 and then everybody stopped. Some people got down. We heard pop, pop again. 
Uh, for a second, I thought about getting down, but then I decided to, you know, run to the back. And once I started running, I never looked back because I didn't know if I was going to be shot in my back and I didn't want to see anything behind me. Douglas is one of many who were fortunate to survive their racist attack, which killed 10 people and wounded three others, but will have to live with the trauma of the shooting for the rest of her life. I'm not sleeping at night. I'm on meds now, something I've never been on. Thursday's town hall meeting with the 514 Survivors Fund Committee will help to clear the air on how the money from the fund will be dispersed. Buffalo Urban League President and CEO Thomas Buford serves on the steering committee for the 514 Fund. There will be a process to determine who gets what. You know, that will be a spin down like that will happen. Those determinations will be made and those funds will be allocated, fully allocated, fully dispersed. The trauma Douglas feels has kept her out of work for over two months, and assistance has been slow in coming. All the more reason for these funds to be allocated as quickly as possible. When you go to the resource center, basically they're talking about HEAP. You know, well, we can give you HEAP. What about basic money for your gas, money for your, your pets? You know what I'm saying? Things like that. I was working before that shooting. I tried to go back to work, and here I am, but I'm the one that's, that's not spoken about. I wasn't shot, but I didn't come out the way I went in. Activist Miles Carter is trying to bring attention to the plight of Douglas and others like her, steering them towards community-based mental health programs and steering some of the funds towards forgotten victims like Douglas and others who aren't top of mind. Carter stresses these individuals need more than just mental health counseling. They need financial services, real financial help. But the thought of private funds being doled out on a whim by business and community leaders is irksome to Carter. I believe the way it worked is all these other organizations put their money into that fund as opposed to giving it directly to the individuals that were impacted. Carter says the pooling of these resources doesn't necessarily take donor intent into account. All of these fundraisers were done for different reasons. Some of them were for the families of the deceased, some of them were for the injured, some of them were for those individuals that were in tops and affected, some of them for the employees. So then to put all that money directly into that pot and then kind of divide it up as you see fit is not morally correct. Buford sees the fund as acting like the United Way with an assessment of needs that determines where the money goes. And that needs assessment, when we talk about being deliberate and intentional, it will be based on the community's input. They'll be actively participating in how things are prioritized and how things are appropriate. Douglas's appeal to the committee is for them to simply do the right thing. I want them to be taken care of the way that they should. Mental health, counseling, they should have counseling free for as long as they need it without going through their insurance. But we don't. We have to use our insurance right now. I mean, I just think that any survivor should be getting whatever they need to heal. Thomas O'Neill White. WBFO News. The priority in distributing the donations is to those who lost family or who were wounded in the mass shooting. The process requires an application, and the rules will be explained this afternoon. Led by activist Miles Carter, several other people say they were there and deserve some help because of psychological damage by seeing what happened. They had a news conference yesterday just outside City Honors School. Keisha Douglas says she deserves some help, and she's not getting help from anyone else and shouldn't even have to fill out an application. I was inside, and I'm not the same person. I lost something. I'm trying to figure out how am I supposed to live when all of this is over. I'm not eligible for workers' comp. I'm not eligible for unemployment. I'm not because I was at a grocery store shopping. Nothing, what happened to me didn't happen on my job. 
So what am I supposed to do? That's generally the story from the other two people at the news conference, including a TOPS employee who isn't being paid because she just can't go back to work after what she saw and heard as the shots started flying. Mike Desmond, WBFO News. Sundown Towns, a hidden dimension of segregation in America by James W. Lowend. Police in a suburb of Indianapolis say the three people killed by a man with a rifle at the Greenwood Park Mall yesterday all had Latino surnames, but it is not clear if they were targeted because of their ethnicity. And they also say a bystander saved many lives by using the handgun that he was carrying to shoot and kill the man with the rifle. Joining us now is reporter Katrina Pross with member station WFYI in Indianapolis. Hi there. Hi, good afternoon. Katrina, what do we know about the man with the rifle who started shooting? Yeah, so police say he was a 20-year-old white male who lived alone, and at this point there's nothing to indicate a motive or that he was part of any group. They've interviewed members of his family who say they were just as surprised as anyone that he would do something like this. They say he had multiple weapons that he legally purchased himself, and he fired 24 rounds of ammunition. You said that police say nothing to indicate a motive. Anything social on social media or internet data that would indicate he had a reason to seek out victims or to be a mass shooter? No, not at this point. Police say he doesn't appear to have a presence on social media, but the investigation is being slowed by the fact that the shooter tried to destroy both his cell phone and a laptop. They say he was in a bathroom at the mall for more than an hour before he started shooting, and he dropped a cell phone in a toilet there. Police are trying to recover data from the phone and the laptop. Okay, so what do we know about the bystander at that mall who shot the man with the rifle? Yeah, so he's a 22-year-old from Seymour, Indiana, named Elijah Dickin, and he was shopping at the mall with his girlfriend. Police say he used the handgun he was carrying to kill the man with the rifle about two minutes after the shooting started. Here's Greenwood Police Chief Jim Eisen. Many more people would have died last night if not for a responsible armed citizen that took action very quickly within the first two minutes of this shooting. Police praised Dickens' skill as a shooter and said he fired 10 rounds from his 9mm Glock handgun. They say he had no police or military background. And they say it was legal for Dickens to have his pistol on him at the mall after the constitutional carry law that Indiana's legislature passed earlier this year. It's only been in effect since July 1st, and it passed over the opposition of several police departments and organizations. So far, Dickens has not made any public statements or comments. Katrina, what comes next in this investigation? Yeah, so police are trying to recover data from the cell phone that the, sh- that, the, that the shooter dropped in a toilet at the mall before he started killing people and from a laptop they found at his apartment, which was left in an oven at a high temperature with a can of butane next to it. Okay. And lastly, what do we know about the shooting victims, the people who died there at that mall? Yeah, so we know that two were a married couple, Pedro Pineda and Rosa Miriam Riviera de Pineda, aged 56 and 37, and Victor Gomez, who was 30 years old. All three of them lived in Indianapolis, but we don't know any more about them at this point. All right. That is WFYI's Katrina Pross. Thank you for your reporting. Thank you. Mm-mm-mm. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, July 23, 2022. So I have been told uh, for folks who, if you were listening online, uh, I had tech problems briefly. uh, So I'll get the online rolling again. 
Uh, in the meantime, uh, you can feel free to dial in via phone 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Archives will be great. Uh, if you have commentary, questions, observations to share, no spectating, feel free. Let us know your views. Uh, this broadcast, the compensatory call-in specifically, hopefully one of the things that this broadcast has promoted, continues to promote over the years, counter-racist media literacy. Many times when we hear information, reportedly news or what have you, your brain computer, Dr. Welsing's metaphor for sure, should be operating, evaluating, what am I hearing? Using counter-racist logic to evaluate, make sense of, what exactly am I getting that? We can take that last report just right there. Now, that is important. They said the three people killed had so-called Latino surnames. Hey, make it easy. Are these non-white people? This is information you can easily ascertain. Are these individuals classified as non-white? So did we have a 20-year-old white man go out and kill three non-white people? Now, counter-racist literacy, hey, Greenwood, Indiana, Conklin, New York, Highland Park, Illinois, racially restricted regions. Now, if they were really doing high-quality journalism, it would be so this is the third time since May that a white gunman born in a racially restricted region and or they open fire in a racially restricted region. Third time this year, Conklin, New York, Highland Park, Illinois, now Greenwood, Indianapolis at the mall. That, in my view, gives a much different understanding of how you process this sort of event, especially now they're happening in succession. These young white men going out and doing these crimes from these racially restricted regions. That would be, and again, that would be another one. I have connections to this Greenwood area or Indiana in general. Did we know this is a racially restricted region? Library research project right there. And they do have material on Greenwood, Indiana being a racially restricted region. I think it might even be mentioned in sundown towns. Anywho, uh, so a few things before we get 
started. So our schedule for this past week was greatly disrupted. We still did all the programs that I said we were going to do. We just, the dates and times got switched around, but we were still bang, 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 ready to roll for this past week, all of our counter-racist duties. This week, we will try to see if we can stick to the schedule. So we should be here on Monday. I said, man, oh man, we are correct and exact. They were talking about the national parks and trying to get black people there, and they talked about the killing of uh, James Cheney and those two white boys. That's normally the way that I say it and have been saying it that way for years deliberately. They mentioned that 1964, they call that Freedom Summer in the Civil Rights Movement. Our guest on Monday, we get a slight reprieve from Buffalo, but not really, uh, the white author of Black Bodies in the River will be with us on Monday, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I cannot wait, especially he talks a lot about the FBI's involvement in this case. In fact, the lame, tacky, racist, deceptive movie, Mississippi Burning, if you want to, I was going to say waste time, but it really is not that. That is the deceptive nature of television. If you watch that movie, you will think, wow, the FBI agents, the white FBI agents were great. They were friends of the Negro. You would not even know that they had a, such a thing as Pro operating at the exact same moment as Freedom Summer, so-called. Cannot wait to chat about all of this on Monday. Black Bodies in the River. Even why is that the title of the book? So fascinating. So that's Monday, Mississippi Burning. Man, Gene Hackman. I've quoted, that's the one I quoted uh, where they're singing the Klan song in that one. Any hoodle, Wednesday, we are breaking the rule here at the cows. Now, we broke that rule already this summer with Dr. Frank Dobson, black male on the program. Breaking the rule, Nicholas Gunn, black male will be on the program. I contemplated playing the sound clip again. Uh, I played it last week. Black male, he was at the uh, Crazel Art Festival in St. Joseph, Michigan, which is, again, racially restricted region. He was called the Nigra and abused and all this other stuff while he was at the festival. Uh, and they had him on the interview. He was talking to the news about what happened. And he said that his family members told him, don't cross the bridge. He's in Benton Harbor. And it's a six minute drive from Benton Harbor, Michigan to St. Joseph. Michigan. You have to cross the bridge. And he said his family told him, don't cross the bridge. Don't go to St. Joe. Don't do it. It's all I love everybody. You know, universal uh, ethic. Talked about, uh, we talked about that with uh, Dr. Marimba Ani. Love everyone. Oh, yes. Embrace everyone. Oh, yes. Forget all that. You know, don't cross the I love everybody. So he goes over there and gets brutalized. He talked about this was a horrible incident. They, uh, like, physically assaulted him and called him a nigger and, you know, all this other stuff. And uh, he was in tears. You know, he was really, you know, terrorized, traumatized by this incident. And I said, man, I want to talk to him. I want to know, like, explicitly, what did your family, was it your mother, was it your dad, combination, many people, what details did they tell you 
about St. Joseph because I didn't know about St. Joseph. I didn't know that this is a racially restricted region. When I started looking, oh, wow. Eric McGinnis. Do you know the name Eric McGinnis? If you don't, Wednesday, we will be talking about it. I didn't know that name either, Eric McGinnis. Black bodies in the river, right? I, I think I said this yesterday. So I'm at Green Lake. I'm in my hammock. I'm reading Black Bodies in the River, which is not fun summer reading, but hey, what to do? So I'm reading that to prepare for Monday. I stop and take a break, and I'm looking at the documentary on Eric McGinnis. Eric McGinnis is black male found floating in the river, St. Joseph, Michigan. 1991, looked at Eric McGinnis, looked back at black bodies in the river. I looked back at Eric McGinnis. Man. So Wednesday, we will talk to Nicholas Gunn. I cannot wait to ask him, so do you know who Eric McGinnis is? And if he says no, he doesn't, I got to get a lot of details about what exactly did your family or what have you, what did they tell you about why you shouldn't cross the river? Now, if he does know who Eric McGinnis is and his attitude was still, oh, no, I'm going across the river. Wow. That's even more shocking. There are many more names. They like to do those macabre uh, roll calls of black people who've been killed. I could have given you a much longer list and will on Wednesday for black male victims of white terrorism in St. Joseph, Michigan, racially restricted region. Well over 90% white people where this event took place with Nicholas Gunn. I cannot wait. I cannot wait to chat it up on Wednesday. I'm going to try to be on my best behavior, but since we are breaking the rule, this could break out into fisticuffs, name-calling, anything. Uh, this is a young victim. Uh, and the other reason, because I played that segment last week, and then we just had the conversation talking about how to talk to other family members about racism. He said his family did tell him. They did warn him about this uh, environment, St. Joseph, and he went anyway, and this is what happened. So I'm very excited. I, I mean, we have a rule for many reasons. But I do want to talk to Nicholas Gutt. If we have anyone, if you have connections to the Michigan area, if you don't know about St. Joseph and or Eric McGinnis, tune in for Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, and then we continue with the book club. Now, before we get to some of the other events, hear from folks who called in and what have you. Uh, today, I was going to read. I was going to Green Lake, read Black Bodies in the River. I was stopping at the market to grab my lunch. They have lots, this is Seattle, so they have lots of fresh organic veggies and fruits and farmer's markets and all of that stuff all over the place. So I'm stopping to get vegan pesto roasted veggie pizza. Fresh, like as soon as I walked in, made it piping hot. I'm so excited. I can smell it like it's not quite burning my hand, but almost there, like right out of the oven. I am so super excited. Um, right, And the market is like right at the lake, so I'm going to walk. 
buffet and I'm so excited. I was like, I'm not even going to put up my hammock. I'm just going to go grab one of the seats at the benches and enjoy my pizza and maybe, you know, watch a movie or something. So I'm going out of the store with my pizza in hand and I see a black male. Now, I do not have, I was not born here. So it's not like I have homies and such that I went to high school and middle school and all that stuff. That is not the case. Gus T is a curmudgeon, a misanthrope through and through. I do not have one friend, homie, uh, be in Toronto, formerly, now designated black. She said, so if, like, something happened, if, like, you know, you all have the volcano erupts up there or earthquake or both at the same time, and you had to grab, you know, your one non-white homie to, to get a paddle and see if you could wade through the, the volcanic lava, do you have one person? I said, absolutely not. Like, misanthrope, through and through, curmudgeon. So I do not go out with the expectation that I am going to speak to or be greeted by any friends, pals, brothers, none of the above. Fellas, Gus, what are you up to? I immediately, like, whoa, what is going on? Where is my pepper spray? I look, black person, now I'm even more suspicious. I mean, I really, I do not, really. You could pick me up and put me anywhere in the known universe. Johannesburg. Uh, Istanbul, Shanghai, Paris, Montreal, San Antonio, Rio, pick the location. It would not change. So he says, Gus, I look and he says, oh, oh, you probably don't remember. It's been, you know, a few years, but, oh, it's me. And I'm like, oh, and plus he had his mask on, so I couldn't really see his full uh, face. Uh, and so he says, oh, it's me. And I was like, oh, my goodness, black male. Eee, where's my pepper spray? Uh, and so uh, he says, man, I was just thinking about you the other day. And I said, oh, my God, I bet I was about 15,000 coons. Uh, and I said, well, I hope it was something constructive. Uh, and he says, oh, it was, it was, it was. Uh, and he says, uh, I was I was just thinking like, man, we, you said so many years ago, you were talking about uh, Tom Brady and the Patriots, and you were connecting it to racism and how they're like the the architect in, in terms of racism in football. They're like the architectal archetypal franchise. And he said this was like 15 years ago. And so he says all this. And so at first I was thinking like, oh okay, that's you know that's nice. That's something where you can feel all right about. And then I paused. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I had to try to try to do the math like that. No count. Uh, suspected racist Tom Brady has played so long uh, that I said, man, so at that point he had already won three Super Bowls with the Patriots. So then I felt a lot, a little bit more deflated like, yeah, how proud should one be uh, that you have, have pointed out racism, white supremacy in the NFL with Tom Brady after they have won three Super Bowls. I didn't feel, you know, as proud then. So he says, yeah, but it, it just it permanently changed the way that I, I look at sports and all that and, and, and even think about all that. I was just I was thinking about you and you saying that the other day. And I said, well, I'm still ready to go and my pepper spray is near. So that's grand. We will uh, 
talk down the road. He says, wow, that's great. You look like you've been taking really good care of yourself. Wow, that's look like you haven't even aged. Now we'll be truthful. When he said that, when, when he said that about Tom Brady at first, for a brief moment, it's like, wow, that's all right. Blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, oh, yeah, that they, the dynasty was already set like that. You were a little bit late. If you had been paying attention, you would have got that on your own. When he said, it's been 15 years and you look like, wow, just like you did before, you must be taking care of yourself. Now, I could have taken that as pay. That yoga, I've been telling y'all, we had our caller who dialed in yesterday, said he lost 40 pounds. Vegetables, getting off of the Cheetos, getting off of the Juicy Juice and the burgers and all that, lost 40 pounds. Going out looking tough for the summertime, no shirt. Now, I could have said, hey, that, eating correctly. Mr. Fuller talks about that's one of the four of us we're supposed to be doing. Eating correctly, get those veggies, get that exercise, drink that water. Sobriety would be best going to bed. Should have mentioned that one way earlier. Going to bed. I was appalled. They had they were celebrating midnight basketball in Atlanta as though this was like nineteen seventy or something. I said, Man, it is almost two thousand twenty five. They are talking about images of other galaxies from the Webb telescope plotting trips to outer space, and I'm supposed to be excited about midnight basketball for Negras? Go to bed. Get more rest. Any who, I did not take that as, wow, that's great. Eating well and doing yoga, I took that as, oh, my God, what a lie. Because <laughs> I said it. The reason I said that was because me and old Bron James do not have the same tax bracket. I don't know if this is news to you all, but counter-racism does not pay well, at least not for Gus T. Renegade. Bron James, if you go look photographs of him getting stomped out in the 2007 NBA Finals. And then you go and look at pictures of him now, L.A. He does not look the same. And he's had Bron James money the whole time. Vitamix and all that. All of that only reminded me because I paused for a second, like, dang, Gus T, that's messed up. Like, you couldn't just take that, like, oh, that's constructive because he wanted to do the old tacky, like, uh, pound and fist bump and all that. Oh, God. <laughs> I said, man, I took my pizza right. And uh, there were many reasons, that alone. Like, I told you I had piping hot vegan pizza in my hand. That trumps foolishness with victims of racism, like, all day, every day. Yeah, I did a whole program. I hate talking to non-white people. Yes? Okay. Now, I did, still four months of, dang, that's messed up, man. You could have been, you know, loving and, hey, let's meet up and have a tea and a coffee and chat it up, talk about eating healthy and what you've been up to and racism. How many championships Tom Brady is one that, like, wow, did that one age well, even with Tom Brady having won those three then? Like, Home run. Anyway, uh, no. 
And if he had asked, I would not have even faked it. And it did not take a whole lot of time for me to be like, oh, yeah. There's a whole lot of reasons why Gusty Renegade Renegade is curmudgeon all day, today, tomorrow. You can take that on out into infinity until this problem is solved and probably even afterwards. This here fella is someone I reference. I referenced him this year. I'm going to pause and give you like Cal's history, like for real Cal's history, just about this guy that I saw literally hours ago before we went live. Number one, I'm going to even give you these in reverse order. We're going to go backwards. And I, that should even tell you something that I have stories. Story number one. The cows literally has just come into existence, 2007, University of Washington. He is an alumnus, University of Washington. I am not worthless Negro from Virginia. Back of the bus, started the cows with Gus T in 2007. He organizes a meeting for victims of white supremacy, and that's what it's called. I had other plans that night, United Independent, so I wasn't even going to be there. These victims get together, we'll say 10 people, not all of them classified as black, but everybody's not white. They get together, and they're doing their meeting, talk about racism, what it is, things they like to do. This is like October, so the academic school year had only started maybe 30 days ago. Back at the bus, University of Washington student at the time as well, alumnus. Uh, my plans got switched around, so I ended up having free time at the time of this meeting. So I stopped by a few minutes uh, late because I didn't plan to be there, but so I swing by. I go in. The black man who was at the grocery store today, he is present. We talked about this in the cow's archives, in fact. So they're talking about the system of racism, what it is, how it works. Somehow the metaphor of a prison is being used to describe Racism. Someone asks the question, what's outside the prison? This black male answers, white women? Back of the bus and I look at each other, hold that glance for a moment, knowingly. We move forward. We continue with the same meeting, same evening. And we're talking about white supremacy racism. Somehow the concept or question gets raised do white people punish other white people for practicing racism? And so we said, no, they do not. This black male victim who I'm talking about at the grocery store today, he says Oliver North, Iran Contra, mentioned on the program this week. And I said that, no. Uh, at the time, 2007, uh, Oliver North, isn't he running for political office? said, no, he's not. Oliver North is in prison. So we have to stop the meeting, and someone goes and looks online. Uh, by this point, 2007, Oliver North is not in greater confinement, and he is indeed making campaigns to run for political office. So we skip through all of this, and we cows is in existence. We go to do our radio program later on. Back of the bus ends up sharing that this black, somehow he found out, this black male acknowledged that he came not agreeing with our views on racism, white supremacy, no problem, BGQ, but he came like to get entertainment 
laughing at what we were going to present. Well, I, guess I wasn't even supposed to be there. What back of the bus and the other people were going to present. And I was just like, wow, you would come to ridicule other victims of racism, not to just share something constructive, not to try to learn. In fact, if I think these non-white people don't know what they're talking about, and that is the case frequently, that's why it's white guests only, I'm not going to go and sit just to uh, spectate and ridicule. Like, what is that for? How is that a constructive use of even my time? Next story. That event happened in October of 2007. In March of 2008, cows had been kicked off the air. We did not get back on the air until February of 2009. That was solidified by March of 2008. It was awful. Like 2008, oh, right up there in the running for worst year ever. That is the year that brought us President Obama. I mean, my gosh. So Martin, by this point, March 2008, I knew he was going to win. We weren't on the air at this point. But the quarter ended, the winter quarter ended at the University of Washington. Spring is on the way. It is about 5 p.m. in the afternoon. I go outside, Red Square. I go outside Suzalo Library to be specific, Suzalo Allen. That's on the uh, – you're looking west. So I go out of the library. On the right of me is the broken obelisk, Wellsing moment. You can see all of the visuals of this online. They have live time cameras of Red Square. Uh, in front of me, they have the huge statue to George Washington, and he's holding a sword. It's enormous. Black male that I bumped into at the grocery store today is holding hands with a white woman, literally, as they walk off into the sunset. We did not speak. I didn't look to, oh, man, the black brother's been had, you know, Camp Coon, and I didn't look to say any of that. I just said, wow. <laughs> Some days, basically every day in the system of white supremacy is a defeat. Some days feel better than others. Like, man, at least we gave a good effort today or accomplished a few constructive days. Like in that moment, with everything that had happened, we had been kicked off the air, and it was just Awful 2008, and then yeah, I could see by that point on the rise, oh, President Obama's coming too. Like, oh, at that moment, I walk out of the library. Literally, it is, I mean, literally, you could not paint a picture. George Washington statue, this black male holding hands with this white woman walking off into the spring, early spring sunset. I said, some days you take L's, losses, in the system of white supremacy. This is like clear-cut, don't be confused, no ambiguity, racism, white supremacy, put a size 14 in your hind parts today, Gus T, pow, and if you need a visual, there you go. Try again tomorrow, buddy. Thought that was your black brother. Hmm. Story number three. Now, I even almost had an audio with this one. Should have. I might. I'll think about it for the archives. See how I can do with my storytelling. So this, I'm going back to the summer of 
2007. Specifically, this is between the end of the summer quarter at the University of Washington and the start of the fall quarter 2007. So this is literally about 60 days before the cows came into existence. Back of the bus and I are sitting, again, not in front of the liquor store. We are not splitting a blunt, dumping tobacco out on the ground, ready to do a little puff, puff pass. No. We're sitting in front of, this time, Odegaard Library, University of Washington Red Square. George Washington statue almost right in front of us this time. We're sitting on the steps. The black male that I bumped into at the store today walks up behind us. Now I'm going to pause right here so you can get the understanding of what follows. At this time, 2007, the Boondocks second season was about to begin. We talked about the Boondocks on the cows and all that. Back of the bus and I watched the Boondocks. Season one in the Boondocks, they have an episode uh, with Ed Asner, the late Ed Asner. And it's The Block is Hot. In this episode, it starts Uncle Ruckus, funny character, right, black male. He gets shot by the police. I thought it was so funny. Like, whoo, time is exact. This event happened. I bumped into this black male after the audio for today's program was complete meaning I had already made the sound clip using this episode of the boondocks. And then I bumped into this guy, which is connected to this boondock story. I'm telling you right now. So uncle ruckus gets shot 118 times. That's the audio you heard today, right? Uncle ruckus. Who wants to hear bringing up old stuff about somebody getting shot 118 times. We're not on that intimate deer lane. We're about unity. In that same episode where Uncle Ruckus gets shot 118 times, he, his only request, make me an honorary police officer, the news cameras, they come out, they interview him. Uncle Ruckus, he's talking to him, and he says, uh, you know, he's anti-black. He can't stand black people. So he says, hey, it's great out here. Racism is a problem. I love it out here. Uh, all of you darkies are welcome uh, just make sure that you're gone by the sundown. <laughs> just joking, just joking, just joking. Not really. That's the punchline, right, for Uncle Ruckus. Uh, I'm just joking, but not really. So that's the Boondocks episode, which we had watched, Back of the Bus and I, liberally. So now I'm coming back to the moment. So the black male that I bump into at the store today, he walks up behind Back of the bus and I sitting on the steps out in front of Odegaard Library, University of Washington. He says, what are you two niggas up to? (laughs) Just joking, just joking. Back of the bus and I turn to each other in unison. We both said in stereo, not really. I, I think what I said, Gus T. Renegade, 
worthless Negro from Virginia, and I will even give you extra context. Now, this was a long time ago, still learning. I know a lot more now than I do than I did at that time. I did not, I did not ever address anyone. My nigga, what's up, my nigga, what's up, my nigga? Never. Certainly not this black male. Now, added on top of that was that event happened, which we have talked about on the cows before us in the archives, back of the bus and I, that event happened. There were two black females that the both of us knew at that time who talked about racism, white supremacy, spoke with Mr. Fuller and everything. We told them about this because they know this black male also. They added another story. They said, that's so fascinating. We too, these black ladies, we were out walking somewhere in Seattle near the university campus. This black male was riding with white people, which is not a crime, but he's riding with them. And he yells out at these two black females, hey, what's up, my niggas? Now, again, myself, back of the bus, these young ladies, we're not prudes. We've heard profanities before, said nigra before, all of that. But I don't think they, at least these young ladies, they have never addressed me. They see me out in public as, hey, what's up, nigra? Much less you're with your white homies if I had any. And that's the time that you want to publicly, hey, what's up, niggers? Those were all of the stories that flooded back immediately like, oh, it's not like we got lots of times of us sitting around and exchanging like kente cloth socks and we went to watch Belly and Negro classics like The Hate You Give and I'm going to get you sucker and all that. No, no, that's not, that's not our history at all. Moment in Negro history that did happen today and big part of why it is always, if you like the cows, so what? If you don't like the cows, so what? Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Now, uh, the news clips, and then we can get to the folks who uh, dialed in. Uh, in fact, let's see. What, what news clip, if I was only going to pick one, and I had this. Oh, I got to say two. I have to say two. Let's see. I'll do... Uh, Denmark Vesey and Sam Dobson, and then we'll get folks who dialed in. Uh, for Denmark Vesey, I'm not into memorials and monuments and all of that. Uh, I just never have been uh, for myself or anybody else. Even if they say, hey, we're going to put a monument up to Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. It's going to be great. we got a black person to do the monument. we got one of her relatives, in fact. He's going to do the monument. It looks great. Uh, it looks just like her. It looks like the actual person. She's going to jump off and do some teaching or something. Uh, I'm just not 
uh, a supporter of monuments. I've seen what they do. They put an Emmett Till monument up or they put a Stephen Lawrence monument up anywhere in the world, and they go and put smear dog feces on it or use it for a bullet practice or whatever the case may be. So I end white supremacy racism, and then maybe I'll reconsider uh, monuments to victims or, you know, whatever it's going to be. They do the Denmark Vesey, and even within that report, talk about counter-racist media literacy. It's not that white people or anybody else is not comfortable or unwilling to discuss so-called slavery in this part of the world and in an honest manner. There's more books on slavery than you could ever read in a lifetime, many of them written by individuals classified as white. It's that individuals classified as white racists, they deliberately suppress any evidence of black counter violence. That's why you have people that do not know Denmark Vesey, Gabriel Prosser, uh, Nkosi Sandoe, black men, more recent even. Mark Essex, give a long list of black males. We don't know because they do not. Even that's why I was bringing up uh, the black male. It's not Jackie Robinson, first black baseball player. That's why I've been bringing that up as well. Uh, Counter violence is what they do not want to discuss. It's not the slavery uh, component. Either way, in South Carolina, Charleston specifically, Dylan Roof, uh, where they are going to do all of this, they said they were doing like their festival and they're having all these different uh, I guess like events connected to this, and they said that uh, Anthony Hamilton is going to come and do the singing. You know, great, all right, wonderful, okay, blah blah blah. And they said uh, D.L. Hughley is going to come and and they're doing the comedy show that Saturday. I had to rewind a few now. D.L. Hughley, victim of racism. I just had to rewind a few times. Like, did I? It, maybe I made an error. Maybe this is not the same. They switch to something else because sometimes the news clip will end and it'll just automatically start with a new clip. Maybe that happens. So I rewound a few times. Like, no, this seems like this is part of the same. Didn't Mark Vesey recognition? Okay. Hmm. Now, I mean, hey, D.L. Hughley, I'm sure, has many interests beyond just being an entertainer. Comedian specifically. But man, if this is supposed to be like we're serious about addressing this, seriously address slavery, white supremacy, racism, what? I did insert the comedy boing sound effect. D.L. Hughley? Really? Denmark Vesey? That's the time to wheel out Denmark Vesey? Not Danny Glover? Like, we don't have more serious options? Anywho, uh, if I had to pick one other, I'd got to say something about the urination uh, bit in South Africa. I'll get that in. But Sam Dobbins, the white enforcement official bragging about all of the black males. Number one, that clip is exactly why I say I'm not with the uh, redacting comments. Let's just hear what Mr. Dobbins had to say. This is a paid public official. Like, if you can show me all of these videos of black males being brutalized, and oh my gosh, look, he's got his knee on his neck for, uh, we've timed it for five. We're going to show all five minutes to see the knee is on the neck and the amount of pressure on his esophagus. If you can show me all that, 
I do not mind hearing a little filth flooring. And I want to hear what did he say? Did he did he? Because I don't think he said he shot 13 African-Americans. I don't think he said that he's shot uh, 13 Nubian princes. Let me hear it now. If he said I've shot 13 Negras, let's hear it. Let's hear what he said, especially if he's been terminated now. What does it matter? And let's get all of it. Who did you have to shoot 119 times? They just had the case in Ohio, cases really, but the case in Ohio, 60 wounds. Who are these people? Who are these people that have to be shot 100 times, 119 times when you got Dylan Roof gets a hamburger? Peyton Gendron, chilling. Let's even fact check that one. Like, who is this? Is this one where he's, is what they call, lying on his pistol? Is that what's happening here? I'm just talking tough, talking to a nigger, so I want to impress. You know, I'm a tough guy. I've killed all these people and shot them. Because that does happen, right? Chris Kyle, that sort of thing where white people brag about kills and that sort of thing that they've made, which is, now that's fascinating part of white culture right there. But I mean, really? If this is for real, for real, who is this person? Who did you shoot? 119 times that you can brag about it. And these other people, who are they? Because they do reinvestigate sometimes, right? When you get new information, like, really? Because this is sounding like somebody like, hey, I do this professionally. I can fabricate evidence. I'm a smart dude. See, he didn't sound like, oh, I'm just some ignorant white man. I don't know nothing. You know, I'm struggling to get by. Barely add one to one or two. That's not what he said. Shot him 119 times. I'm the only man in this apartment smart enough that I can do it and make it happen. You're going to get involved in something out there. You do not want to alienate me. That's Sam Dobbins. Not ignorant about white supremacy, racism, and all of that could have been workplace racism. Kudos to the black male you don't want to hop in and interrupt him, and how dare you say that, and we aren't going to talk to me that way. Hit record. He did the active listening, too. Sam Dobbins got rolling, and I shot him 119 times, and you know I shot 13 niggers, and might have been some black male privilege there, too, right? But anyway, he does all that. He said, for real? Show sure enough? Oh, I'm listening. Tell me about it. How many times you shoot him? Right on. Is that right? Active, but that's all you need to do. All those would count as questions, really. (laughs) Sure enough. Is that right? For real? How many times you shot him? (laughs) Thirteen questions. All the question lane, question lane, question lane. So yeah, record. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Is that so? Mm. No statements at all. But that right there, that brat, because we're book club mandatory for many reasons. Now, how many times? Because it's not just Joseph Christopher. It's lots of white people in that book bragged about killing black people. That is a part of white culture. Brett, that's, that is the lynching photographs, right? Bragging 
about killing a black. I was there in my Sunday best. We were there by the thousands bragging about that's Chris Kyle. Remember that? He said he was in New Orleans. We were up on the Superdome shooting niggers. We were up on the so-called, well, I won't say anniversary, but close to, uh, I forgot how many years it'll be from uh, for Katrina. Was it 17 years at this point? Could be, but yeah, for Katrina. Uh, that's what they said. Chris Kyle, American sniper. I was up on the on the Superdome shooting, and even if it wasn't him, in the documentary film, Welcome to New Orleans, you can see white people doing exactly this. Yes, eating a hot dog, no less. Picnic in the original sense of the word. We went out, and that's what we did. We picked Negroes. We shot and killed them. That's what we did. Give me another hot dog. Extra mustard. That's what we did. Castrated them and all. Hmm. Best hot dog ever. Yeah, yeah, yes. But yes, we went out. Got mustard in my beard. Yes, we went out and we killed them. Yes, we did. That's on footage. Welcome to New Orleans. That's another one. You live in Louisiana. Local hit. You got to be PhD doctorate about Hurricane Katrina, the levee failure, all that by the time you are 10 years old. So you know. All of that. I've seen the documentary, Welcome to New Orleans, about 15 times. I know it forwards and backwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasted a whole summer on that. Anywho, I'll get to the rest of it later. Number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate, not for spectators. Uh, if you are in a noisy environment, uh, if you could use your mute button and then try to maybe get to a quieter area, that would be super appreciated just to make sure that we don't have a lot of unnecessary background noise. Uh, if everybody can take about five minutes to share their thoughts, observations, views, that would be great. Uh, just make sure everyone gets at least one opportunity to share. Uh, for this program, I'll give out the quick uh, reminder, uh, no metaphors, uh, all the cows programs, not just this one actually, no metaphors. Uh, we heard some really tacky ones uh, this evening. I think when they were talking about the report of the urine in South Africa, the little terrorists urinated on the black person's property. Uh, they said that the South African uh, enforcement officers were dragging their feet that was the metaphor used. Mm. If we could use words to be precise, exact with what we mean, that would be super appreciated. That is a major component of counter-racism to be exact, precise, scientific with our word choice. Uh, that's something all of us are supposed to be working at, see if we can get better. Number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see if folks have commentary they would like to share. We'll see. First few folks with a hand up line should be open. Hello. Can you hear? 
for a few of you, uh, let's get Irie in Louisiana. Just mentioned Irie in Louisiana should have a Ph.D. in Hurricane Katrina and Louisiana history. Yes, ma'am. Uh, uh, Anyo, good evening, everybody. Um, I would show my uh, son different documentaries and news footage um, on the anniversary, um, and he really didn't care for it because, um, you know, it's depressing and everything. But, um, yeah, I still um, go over it with him. So he knows, and you know, um, he started, he just admitted that he's like, Mom, you, you write about the stuff you've been telling me about racism. And I asked him, how am I writing? He tells me, um, basically, you know, because of his lived experience and uh, how he's been treated and how he's able to decode the mistreatment because I already kind of you know, I gave him information about what to expect uh, when he was uh, in in high school, especially. Um, but uh, what I wanted to share about the first thing, I had to come in and uh, get on the line and then leave again. But I heard the beginning, um, and they were talking about cryptocurrency. So I, I think as a person that has some experience, Experience, like being in a casino and seeing how casinos work, I feel as though um, crypto and NFTs and all that is just a, a shuffling. It's a way to extract more monetary resources from non-white people uh, as the system of white supremacy expands and refines into something else that I think it's a number of things, but there's, there's, they just want it to be like working poor, absolutely poor, and, and just them, the, the people that hoard all the resources, so-called wealth, comfort, whatever. And Cryptocurrency, I think, is the way they're doing it, and they wouldn't be showcasing black people if it wasn't some type of robbery, some type of fraud. Um, I can personally say that my son convinced me to buy um, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, uh, some Bitcoin, and uh, something else. He was trying to get me to uh, invest more money into uh winter bears in nft which are white bears by the way so i guess a cowbell for that and it it crashed it crashed and so did the rest of the crypto he told me i asked him i said what's the portfolio looking like because he got about three thousand from me he said he was able to get it up to about Twelve thousand, and now it's valued at two. Everything that he has, <laughs> and so there's a major liquidation from non-white people happening, and that is why they're doing what they're doing to market to us and 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 just buy for us to do this. It's a it's a ripoff. Like I said, I I've been in a casino, so I know what a casino looks like, and they call it a token. 
You know what I'm saying? Last time something fiat was called a token that was money, I was in an arcade. I was playing a game, right? So that's what I wanted to share about that. Um, as far as what you said about um, Denmark Bessie and his recognition, you're absolutely right. There shouldn't be a comedy show. It shouldn't be, you know, if there's music, it shouldn't be, well, let's all clap our hands and stump our feet because we're happy that we recognize him, Denmark Bessie. No, why are we recognizing him? The same way that there shouldn't be happiness and, and barbecues and and all these, uh, you know, acts. Of, of of joyousness for Juneteenth, so-called Juneteenth. It should be a day of mourning. People didn't find out until years later or sometime. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, slavery is over. That's a sad thing to know that these people were lied to for even a day, even past the day of so of the so-called emancipation, right? But instead, it's a holiday where white supremacists and racists get to have off. We get to, again, reinforce the Asili and go to the store and buy meat and this and that and, and cold drinks and whatever and, and, and celebrate. And we don't even have historical context and don't want it, looks like. Uh this is the last thing um, I'll share about, well, two things. You know, black people, I just, I pray for us. I pray for us to the point that it gives me, it, I have weight on my heart when I pray for black people. We do a lot to mistreat each other. And I had an event today that was for parents to prepare them for school, to prepare them for school. Do you know your rights? Do you know what the law says about IEPs, about 504 plans, about um, active shooter drills? You know, do you know that the, the lights in the classroom can make your child appear like they have ADHD when they don't? They're just really being exposed all the time to fluorescent light that isn't, it's nowhere near daylight. It's not even warm light. It flickers and it can, you know what I'm saying? All kinds of stuff. How to, you know, there was a vegan chef there with recipes on how to fix food and also meal plans for people that want to go the right way as far as like food for information. And a, a licensed counselor was talking about uh, trauma in the classroom. But because, and I admit, I'm still learning, I'm a victim of racism and I'm also a victim of anti blackness. I got into a heated argument with um, some non white people. And we could have just went our way, our separate ways, because it was it was more so an argument for them of aggression. But I was trying to say, hey, let's slow down. Listen to what I'm saying, please. Like, you're misunderstanding. And because they refused, from what I hear from other people, they told people not to come to the event. So it was very few people that were there. And my thing is, I could disagree with you, Gus, or somebody else. I'm not going to sabotage your plans to try to counter racism. Like, somewhere along the way, these people have it all mixed up like this is their show or something. Like, Instagram and, and all these social media apps is really messing up our psychological profile. And people are really just doing stuff for likes, follows, 
part, whatever it is, and they're forgetting there's a system in place that is backed up by people who practice the things put forth by this system and by and backed up by people who will kill and possibly die for this system. And if I can be constructive and stop a parent from being ignorant, woefully ignorant about what's going on in an establishment that's meant to further subjugate and abuse their children, I, I just don't understand. And that's why I'm a victim of racism, because I don't understand still certain things. So really the last thing I'm going to share about, I didn't get a chance to participate in the cannabis conversation. I, I had heard about it and forgotten by the time I remembered. I was just so bogged down from stress. You probably can hear it. I'm, I'm just very raspy. It's been a long two weeks. Um, I'm kind of glad I didn't participate in it because I'm tired of hearing. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm tired of weed. Weed has just affected my life in so many ways that have, have been destructive that I, I just could go without it. I'm glad for the people that it helps. I'm not saying that it doesn't have its medicinal benefits, but I agree with the doctor. If you're not 25, don't put your lips to it, please. Something I want people to know is that what racists have tried to do with my son whenever he has his psychosis, from, you know, we in the past, we're not expecting any going forward, but they would try to implicate that my son had mental illness because of how he was acting while his nerves basically were shot because of his exposure to cannabis. And I would have to tell them, my son doesn't have any baselines for mental illness, not schizophrenia, not bipolar, not borderline, not whatever you're trying to say. It's non-existent. I said, yes, he did smoke because he's experienced trauma. Yes, he has had a difficult life. We still getting over Hurricane Katrina for crying out loud. We lived in a place we wasn't even supposed to be in, according to my plans, for at least a, a number of years away from family. Yeah, I was in I was in bad relationships. My son endured that with me. Yeah, he probably did get to a point where he wanted to escape but he only has psychosis when he smokes. But they're saying, no, it was already there. It was already there. And I have to, I, I used an analogy with a doctor. I said, okay, so you're telling me my son has mental illness because he smoked weed in like naturally is the same way as you telling me I'm diabetic because I ate a piece of cake and my blood sugar went up. No, I ate a piece of cake. My blood sugar went up. It's a, a biological response to something. And this is his biological response to cannabis. So for the people that think this is a game, if, if a person messes around and goes to the doctor and they don't know how to advocate for themselves and don't have someone to advocate for themselves and don't understand how the mind and the body works, it's easy for a medical so-called professional to convince a person that they're crazy, I'm sorry if that's derogatory, that they have mental illness when they don't. It's just a, literally a reaction to the cannabis. Now, what the doctor said was true. If you keep going, if a person keeps going after it's shown, hey, you trip out when you smoke weed or you have a certain reaction to anything after you drink, after you, you know what I'm saying? Yes, you can set uh, yourself up to have that permanent condition, but 
they're using this as a way, I believe, just from my experience, to say that non-white people are mentally ill when they're not. They're just having a reaction that's neurological that is showing itself as mental illness. There has to be serious, I mean, to say that there has to be overhaul to the whole thing about, yeah, to say that there has to be overhaul to cannabis and how it's sold or whatever is a joke at this point because they're not serious about about it. And unfortunately, black people love to get high and we love to drink. So that's all. I'm still praying for it. I'll mute my line. Sobriety would be best. Can't be said enough. Much obliged, uh, Irie in Louisiana. Very important. Educate about local history uh, as much as we can. It is depressing. Like, I, I totally get them. It is depressing, but whew, even worse to be uninformed, unaware of all of this, and then dealing with the consequences of being uninformed. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, star six one. Uh, if you have commentary, line should be open. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Bay Area mom. Thank you. Um, good evening, everyone, on the program. Um, so I wanted to talk about um, the test scores um, before and after the pandemic for the um, Spanish and. Um, I guess they were just basically talking about um, the Spanish children um, and how they, um, a lot of them didn't have, um, well, I guess how they dropped or uh, dropped uh, quite a bit. And they didn't have um, online, um, well, they went uh, from in-person school to online learning. And then a good portion of them didn't have internet. And then more people didn't have devices. Um, during online um, learning, it wasn't just hard for uh, the Spanish. It was hard for the uh, black uh, children as well. Um, even with the devices, a lot of um, our homes, we do have computers, but we, we, we don't have them to share with you for that long. Well, we can have a computer, but we, we can't. We spent a lot of time on the computers as well, especially if we were at home. Or if we did go to work, you're not going to mess up our computer with your schoolwork. Or however, it is, a lot of people didn't want to um, do the work with the children because it's hard. Maybe that's why they sent them to school in the first place. They didn't have a lot of assistance, and a lot of their children went into depression as well. Um, I did notice the Spanish-speaking children that they, their reading has dropped. A lot of them um, have even forgotten a lot of the math that they do before. Um, especially with special needs, uh, that it did affect them working online because there was no one there to push them. The parents aren't accustomed to being educators, even if we say that we're their first teachers. That doesn't mean we're really teaching them anything constructive. We rely on the school to do all that. And then when it became online, you had a window into their real homes, how dysfunctional it may be, how it may not even be adequate to think or learn or retain information. 
no parents really care about whatever you got going on. You got the cussing in the background or whatever's going on. So it was uh it was complicated. And then by the time they got back to school, they weren't interested in um a lot of the children just aren't interested. They're 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 on edge. Um they they don't really care, so I can understand the dropout rate as well. Um they don't really I mean Enough of them, they don't really care. Um, and you also played a clip about, uh, I think it, was, it sounds like uh, someone in the House of Representatives, they were going back and forth about uh, <laughs> the words that they're using. I guess he was saying something about um, a woman being able to, uh, um, I guess the difference in women and um, not being a woman, and oh, so you're saying a transgender is not a woman? And no, it's not. Oh, you're. And then you come up with these names to call people that um, don't agree with the new way things are going. Um, it's going to be real tricky with using words because you're going to have to be very cautious of what you say because one wrong word, especially if someone gets you in one of those um, strange conversations, you'll be blamed. They'll trick you right into them calling you some kind of anti. And now they're going to start chastising the children if they don't call the other students by their uh, pronouns. It's, this is, Oh dear, this is interesting how, um, because I'm unorthodox, so children really, they're really programming children to be a particular way, so by the time they're adults, they won't be as troublesome maybe as we were or the people before us. They'll be more um, submissive, calm, and courteous, non-threatening adults. Um also noticed uh, they were talking about this Black Panther part, um, and they used words like uh, project under study. And what are you studying about this? What are you studying? What do you need to study about this project? You didn't have to study for the Asian hate bill. So what do you have to study about anything that has to do with us. I just noticed that there's a lot of study when it comes to something that we want. Oh, okay, we got to study that. So there's a lot of uh, studying when it comes to anything that has anything to do with us. Um, and then how the police, when Trump was in office, is oh, no, that's like a hate group. The Black Panther Park. So <laughs> it's... I, the words again, they just use, um, they use trap words. <laughs> oh, that's a metaphor. Huh? They use words that'll get you caught into something that you didn't anticipate being in. Um, and I think that's it. That's it. And thank you for taking my call. I'll mute my line so someone else can um, talk. Much obliged for uh, monitoring your own metaphor. And for listeners that see the difference, trap words to they use words 
to snare you into something that you had not previously considered. Details. The segment she was talking about with Senator uh, Hawley, white man, and uh, Kiara M. Bridges. Now, she's a law professor at Berkeley, California. Oh, where you are. Hey, she's like, literally, she's probably, you know, on your block. Uh, Kiara M. Bridges. So she's a black female professor of law. Says on her faculty page at Berkeley uh, that she graduated as valedictorian from Spelman. She got a JD from Columbia Law School, PhD with distinction from Columbia University's Department of Anthropology. Hmm. But she was the one who was saying that you, uh, that Senator Hawley was uh, being transphobic by saying that only women can give birth to a child. I could have easily prefaced that whole segment with uh, Mr. Fuller talking about degenderization. I thought it was interesting. Now, the NPR segment that discussed all of that from all things considered, uh, they had the speaker on. He said that Senator Hawley was trash talking, right? He knows how to bait people. He didn't have any commentary to say about uh, Kiara M. Bridges. He didn't say that she was trash talking. He didn't say that uh, she was trying to bait him. It was just Senator Hawley who was saying that, hey, women can have babies and then he's you are being transphobic and all the rest of it and he says really I'm, I'm contributing to suicide just by saying that women give birth to babies like really what 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 <laughs> and I am with him in fact I can give you all a quick story really quick so I am in Seattle I don't know I think for the San Francisco I think it's the Castro district is where all the anti-sex like when they have the gay rights parade and all that I think the Castro that's where that is Seattle that location in Atlanta I think it's Midtown here it's Capitol Hill like last month when they have the so-called gay pride parade Capitol Hill is the epicenter so Capitol Hill is also is kind of the epicenter of Seattle period it's right close to downtown and a whole lot of other things right in the center of the city so uh, I'm going to Capitol Hill. My favorite grocery store is there. Uh, I'm going to the market. There's a black female who works there. And she says, man, so many of the people who work here, they are, you know, gender fluid, as they say. And I said, well, it is Capitol Hill. She says, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's right. She said, man, it's it's hard to even say. Like, they got all these pronouns. Everything they said in that segment, they got all these pronouns and all the rest of it. I said, yeah, I just call people by their name. Leave it at that. Don't even get into all of that. And she said, man, it's just wild. And, and then they get end up getting a whole lot of black people into all that confusion. Now, I don't know why she just broke into all this talking to me because I don't talk to her about, you know, what did I, what did I tell you? <laughs> Curmudgeon. Uh, but she broke into all that. She said, yeah, they get all these black people into it. And I just, man, I don't even, it's, it's hard to even make sense. <laughs> confusion. Yes, yes. Confusion. Uh, should not be lost in the midst of all of that, uh, what Bay Area Mom said about the test scores. This segment on NPR, they said the pandemic widened the education gap for students of color. The report just focused on so-called Latino students. They should have said it uh, 
widened education gap for Latino students. I probably would have still played it, but yeah, that was kind of a misdirect uh, there because they didn't give any, not one sentence of information about other non-white students. And I mean, wow, it certainly has had an impact on us all, victims of racism. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if we missed you totally, the number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Other folks? May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you guys for taking my call and good evening to everyone on the line. Um, I hope all of the victims online are taking the best care they can for themselves. Um, uh, from neutralizing workplace racism from last night, I just want to add um, uh, one thing uh, that um, I was um, working uh, uh, overtime and I had a uh, white um, supervisor during that time and this uh white female supervisor requested that people call her boss lady just want that um <clears throat> moving to the reports uh on today's broadcast um the um the testing and literacy rates for uh quote-unquote latino um the term latino is used and a race is not specified, considering Latino is not a race. Um, the um, the part about the, I guess, Denmark VC, I guess there's a show, some kind of comedy tribute to his memory. Um, I suspect that could be um, victims of racism, white supremacy, attempting to uh, laugh to keep from crying about our pitiful state. Um, that also, uh, in non-white black people not taking racism very seriously, um, that also uh, made me think of another, I guess, uh, event that's been in the uh, media for some time now about the Sesame Street um, employees ignoring non-white children um, not giving them hugs or any attention. Um, and uh, they reported about firing the character, I guess, Rosarito or something to that effect, but they didn't bring up the actual um, person portraying the, char uh, the character in the suit. So I thought that was um, white people maintaining the code of not snitching on one another. And I also thought... Um, even if um, that was a white person, would you want them to show black children uh, attention and, and quote-unquote befriend them and further deceive them? That's uh, just a question to uh, think about. Uh, the, um, the remarks of all the report about Sam Dotson um, from the report that was um, shared it said the car was shot at 319 times, and I guess the victim was hit 119 times. Um, yeah, that's that's, uh, that's extreme and should be expected in the system of racism, white supremacy. Um, 
uh, and I guess uh, Sam Dotson also brought up the fact that the department knows about you know about him and the charges and were quote unquote justified kills. Um, I think that the whole department who knew about this should be um, investigated for um, acts of discriminatory um, uh, behavior against non-white people in, in that area. Um, and they also, um, I guess he was also quoted by saying DTR, dead right there. So to me, that's uh, white people making games out of the murder of non-white black people. And thank you guys for taking my call and unmute my line. Making fun out of killing black people, especially black male. I think unless I'm in here, that's why I said I just want the unredacted report. I think this is a lot of black misandry because I think he's talking about shooting a black male 119 times. And when he's saying niggers, I think he's talking about black males. He was talking to a black male. Um, I think lots of black misandry throughout all of this. Um, but yeah, let's <laughs> making games out of killing black people and absolutely like this fella to be chief. I'm sure none of this is a surprise to any of his white family, friends, coworkers, other police officers. They know about Mr. Dobson. Just what? He said, what? Exactly. Investigate the whole department. Dr. Welsing has that whole chapter in the book, uh, justifiable homicide. That's long time been a part of the racist uh, standard operating procedure. Uh, he said the workplace racism component, man, I cracked up. Uh, Bay Area mom, she spoke already today. She's talked repeatedly, young lady that she works with, student, a uh, little girl who I guess comes to school. She's fatigued. Get more rest. I said that. And uh, <clears throat> she was like, I'm sleepy. I'm sleepy. I'm sleepy. I said, man, see, I'd be inventing ways of getting terminated. I'd just been saying I would be trying to see if I could get her instead of saying, I'm sleepy. Say, awful tired now, boss. Awful tired now, boss. I said, yeah, that's gonna get fired she has one time to say that she says what did you say who did you what anywho the white woman requesting she wants to be called boss lady i'm hey i'm all for call people what they want to be called but we i would put that in the workplace journal for that week wants to be called but is this a request for everyone are you just asking the negras or i'd pay attention to that one too but i mean hey whatever that's what you want to be and I probably would still be big time on calling like name but if she said like I don't even want to be called my name anymore just boss lady hmm okay and then see like I said now everybody here supposed to just call her boss lady now wild uh let's see or not wild that right there, what does it mean to be white? I'm in charge. Think the caller in Florida, he said it was a white woman that worked there and she had some sort of tacky ornament or what have you on the desk that she's the queen or what have you. Same thing, in charge. 
especially as it comes to you niggers, I am for show, for show, in charge, boss lady, boss child could even be. Uh, let's see, much obliged, good sir. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, good evening to Gossel Host uh, and to all the participants of the uh, Child's Program. This is Direct uh, Intention. Uh, I wanted to talk about the report, and the first report that um, came to mind to speak about was the report where the non-white professor was addressing a member of, uh, of government. And the comment that was made uh, on the report was that the two um, individuals who were, uh, had conflict with each one another were not being kind to each other. I thought that, that was um, very uh, pitiful in terms of the response that you would want in a system that is correct. Uh, it would seem like you would want them to be truthful with one another, even if it is uh, unkind, so that there could be a resolution to the problem. But if a person does not want a problem to be, be resolved, then you know, being kind is probably something that they would uh, promote. Um, and uh, I wanted to comment also about the, uh, the park name for uh, the, the ancestor, uh, Denmark Beasy. Um, I've We actually have in, excuse me, there is a park, city, state park in New York City. It's in Brooklyn. It's a named after Shirley Chisholm. And in that park, there is a pathetic amount of information about uh, Shirley Chisholm. And there are, to my knowledge, there are no uh, statues or monuments uh, to this person's memory. However, it is a beautiful park. It's well laid out. Uh, it is uh, uh, very accessible to uh, bike riders. Uh, near the water, um, there's a lot of really positive, uh, correct things about uh, that park or beneficial things about that park. So uh, I guess who cares if it does have uh, a lot of information, but it seems like there should be um, more information about uh, the ancestor of Shirley Chisholm if we're going to name a park after her. Um, oh, one thing I wanted to comment regarding the, the host club was the, the host Gus has mentioned that there was uh, a black male who spoke with Peyton Gendron, the uh, race soldier in Buffalo who killed 10 people at the top supermarket, that that black male has sat and talked with uh, the killer uh, for a number of hours and had even given him his key so that he could uh, access uh, the supermarket with uh, some sort of discount. But um, I want to point out that in addition to giving him his keys, he gave him apparently his benefit card, which is has a monetary value uh, to it. So that's the equivalent of someone giving a stranger 
uh, their credit card or some other monetary form that would be very difficult to replace. Uh, I thought that that was, um, I just wanted to point that out. Um, uh, one uh, report that I wanted to speak about was that um, the officer in Mississippi and Lexington who claimed to have killed 13 people, um, I've been to Lexington, Mississippi, and uh, it's it's within a county uh, called Holmes County, which has a population uh, of less, the, the entire county that is, has a population of less than 20,000 people. So a person who was killed, a police officer who was killed 13 people, and I suspect that those uh, 13 black males, black people, and I suspect most of those people would have been black males. That would be incredibly terrifying to live in an area where it is such a small population and you know that there's one person who has been responsible for having killed 13 people. That would definitely uh, make me very uh, alarmed um, and, and terrified, quite frankly. Um, Uh, that is, oh, one other thing I wanted to uh, comment about is uh, what has happened in New York City, in the Bronx of New York, where a, um, an 18-year-old uh, non-white male named Shefron Raymond was killed by a, another non-white male who works as a corrections officer uh, or as a, a law enforcement officer in some capacity. Uh, he was killed while um, playing a game with a, uh, a water gun. Um, and the, I can't remember the name of the water gun, but it, it was a water toy that has a specific name, and I don't remember the name of it, but apparently the report showed that the police officers found a, um, a water gun after he had killed that uh, young white male that they found a water gun that shoots um, pellets, water, uh, water pellets, uh, and there is apparently some type of online uh, game where people uh, are uh, promoted to targeting people to shoot with these water pellets. And uh, it's, um, it's, 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 in my opinion, I feel compassion for the, the victim of that uh, of that shooting, uh, and I also feel compassion for the non-white person who uh, killed that person because that person is uh, going to experience, I'm sure, uh, a long, uh, torturous uh, event of attempting to uh, free himself or get himself free from greater confinement. Uh, which I'm not sure if that's going to be successful or not. But uh, my thought also was that that was one of the stupidest games that a person could play, uh, attempting to uh, frighten, terrorize people with um, uh, a toy that shoots water pellets that apparently do uh, 
hurt if you've been hit by one. Um, and, and that's happened in an area of New York where I am very uh, reluctant to spend much time in is my faculty of advice here driver. Um, that's all I really want to share. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, and have a good evening. I'll meet my line. Much obliged. Like, I don't know what to expect from TikTok. Like, we're talking about the world of the, the milk crate challenge and all the rest of it. So, it uh, this is constructive. I don't know, in comparison to what we were doing about this time last year. Uh, the case he's talking about, this is the Washington Post. Teen with toy water gun is killed by off-duty jail officer, police say. Uh, New York corrections officer has been charged in the killing of a Bronx teen who was shot in the face in an incident where a toy gun featured in a recent TikTok trend may have played a role in his death. Raymond Chalzant, 18, was found unconscious and unresponsive with a gunshot wound to the face from a weapon fired by Dion Middleton, who was off-duty in the Bronx near the intersection of the Cross Bronx Expressway and Morris Avenue at around 1.35 a.m. Thursday, and a New York Police Department spokesperson told the Washington Post. There's a whole lot I could say about that just right there, but I'm going to skip down a little bit. Uh, yeah, here it is. Okay. They were just having fun, said Esquilin 29. It's a new Nerf gun that shoots water. The whole neighborhood was having a water gun fight. It was 90 degrees. The amped up toy water guns have been popular in recent months thanks to the Orbeez challenge on TikTok, which encourages user, users to buy Orbeez soft gel or water balls load them in airsoft guns and fire them at people when they least expect it. Some of the videos posted on TikTok and YouTube since the spring, which have gotten millions of views, show young people firing the toy guns from moving vehicles. Hmm. If you don't understand white supremacy racism, what it is, how it works, everything else will only confuse you. Now, Raymond Chauzant, hope I'm saying his name correctly, 18 years old. Timothy Lohman, they just reported a town broke the law. That's how it was reported. They broke the law to hire Timothy Lohman, not at the Dunkin' Donuts, not at a McDonald's as a police officer. Timothy Lohman killed Tamir Rice with a toy gun. Now, that happened, I think, what was that, 2014? Is that when that happened? Let me make sure I'm not lying on uh, Tamir Rice. I think that was 2014. Yes, 2014. Okay. If he's 18... 2014, so he would have been 10 years old. I'm sure it's possible you could be 10 years old and then never hear the name Tamir Rice over the next eight years or so. I guess, you know, that could happen. But man, that's what I mean about being an attempted parent. You got to make sure, hey, that doesn't happen with my child. Jonathan Crawford, 
That's why Sac City, if you don't understand racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works, everything else will confuse you. Now, I can understand being young. 18, your brain is still developing. We just talked about that. I can understand being young, silly. You see silly things online and you want to be a part of all that. But I mean, really, someone should have had a chat like, hey, you are a non-white male. Some things you cannot do. You cannot have something even looks like a gun and you're running around menacing people. It's not going to be, oh, I was just playing. No. No. It's way too many of these at this late date. Like HD video footage of Tamir Rice being shot and killed. Same thing with Jonathan Crawford. These are This is not ancient history. Lots of reports. These should not be names that people have never heard of or forgotten about. And there are too many of these incidents. This would just have to be. You don't understand white supremacy racism. Same report that they had in Oakland, Tennessee, black male where his mother is yelling, don't resist, don't resist, don't fight, don't fuss, don't flee, yelling, yelling, and he's still resisting. If you don't understand white supremacy racism, like she's looking and thinking correctly, you could be dead in the next two seconds. And I'd just be here to watch it. Helpless. Then they kill me too. got to have a conversation with your children. I would say that very young, Tamir Rice was 11 in 2014. Got to have that conversation very early. And in fact, I do not have children. I do not criticize uh, parents really work not to criticize victims of racism, period. If it's going to become critiquing, start with that fella in the mirror. But my recommendation would be for attempted parents do I even want my child to have a gun? Toy gun I'm talking about. Real thing, that's totally different. But a toy gun, do I even want them to have that for a lot of reasons? I think for me the answer would be no. It's many, many things, books and, and pieces of information and what have you. And I mean, if it's gun time, for real for real let's go to the range do some training and all of that but I mean a nerf gun like really I guess water gun but I mean let's go to the pool let's go to the beach <laughs> I guess lots of ways we can have water fun without a toy gun and then if they ask why let's go to the library and do that report on Jonathan Crawford and even we can add some Negro history, the black person who founded, who engineered the super soaker water gun. That is a black person right there. Add that in as well. Uh, any uh, comments? Oh, we basically done. Anybody need to get anything in that they need can do in like 60 seconds before we I got to say something about the urine. I'll give folks their 60 if anybody has anything, but the urine report in South Africa. Man, if I was not niggerized if I had uh, Bron James money I'd have been to the continent and I could have you know done some study I'd know how to pronounce all of those names correctly and locations for the school but that report black student white fella breaks into the room they included that in the report breaks into the room 
to urinate on his computer and possessions? Man. <laughs> They're looking at criminal charges. They said they expelled him. Like, for real. Like, we talked about this a bunch of times. I almost went back in the archives. Dr. Francis Cress Welsing in 2015 she talked about Bill Cosby and I said man in Madiba's autobiography he talks about how on Robin Island they urinated on him he has that he talks about it vividly and it happened more than once and she was stunned I said matter of fact it's in Madiba's autobiography it's in Richard Williams autobiography Venus and Serena's dad he talks about being in the south I think Mississippi Civil rights with the same nonsense that they're talking about. Freedom Summer and all that. And he said he was going nonviolent. That's right. Let's end racism. He said he was on the ground on his knees. The white man came up and unzipped his pants, pulled out his racist penis to urinate on him. He said, oh, no. <laughs> he got up. He said, I'm going upside this cracker's head. And he said, ah, nah, you got to get out of here. We are about nonviolence. Turn the other cheek. You do not get up and sock that racist man just because he's going to urinate on you. And Mr. Williams said, thank you kindly. Heading to California. <laughs> That's what I'm, we've done enough of that. Racists have pissed on us for a long time. We don't need to accept any more of that. But I don't even know what the codified response is. Racist is urinating on your... <sighs> I do not have the words. I think Gus T might have been in greater confinement because I just I don't know what counter racist code says. This is what you do. Racist man breaks into your room and you wake up there. You and I mean, delectable Negro, the homoeroticism of all that, too. Criminal prosecution like immediately. Uh, let's see. Anybody have anything they needed to get in 60 seconds or we good? Bury your mom or anyone else? Just remember, um, the Nelson, what Nelson Mandela's um, books, how they did him like that, and and when he was in jail, they urinated on him. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I just I said Dr. Welsing, she was here and I was I was telling her about that in his autobiography, where he goes into vivid detail about that because it happened repeatedly while he was detained for all those years. Absolutely, absolutely, good memory. That reading is more important than watching television because I've seen a whole lot of little tacky remembrances. Matter of fact, remember that the next time people want to get on some uh, Madiba. Oh, man, you want to talk about an Uncle Tom. Oh, man, you want to talk about a sellout. Hmm. Go back and read that part of his autobiography where he talks about the number of times that racist whites came and urinated on him and then hmm does that sound like uh Tommen that's what Tommen is letting white people urinate on you that's that's Tommen that's selling out hmm sounds like you want to talk about terrorism victim of white supremacy and homoeroticism what I just said add that one we can wrap there hey I said that earlier this week white people their brain computer, they just, it's very different. I don't mean structurally, but I mean in terms of the way they think, it is substantially different from the way that you and I think. Unless you know, do you know black people? Hey, I'm going to fix their wagon metaphor. 
I'm going to go urinate all over their stuff. They come home at what? Really? Hmm. And then make this a matter of habit where you see this over and over and over and all over the world. Come and urinate on the black people. Hmm. When you get done with Madiba's book, because we did have South Africa in there today, Richard William. I said that's way better. The movie was amazing, but they didn't have that in the movie either. The great Will Smith. Go read that part. They were going to urinate on Richard Williams? Yes. And then Delectable Negro, if you haven't read it. Monday will be Black Bodies in the River. Cannot wait. White Man will be with us. We'll talk about his book that just came out, I think, like, maybe this week. Like, it's it's so new. I got the review copy. I don't even have, like, the pristine finished published copy. Uh, we had to delay the program because at the time I contacted the author, the book was not out, like, at all. But that'll be Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And then Wednesday, Nicholas Gunn will be with us, Black Male. We are breaking the rule because, well, for many reasons, the short of it, racially restricted regions. That is St. Joseph, where he was terrorized. And then we were just discussing how can we effectively discuss racism with our attempted family members Mr. Gunn young I think he's still a teenager brain still developing I think before he was terrorized in St. Joseph Michigan he said that his family attempted to tell him don't cross the bridge don't go to St. Joe dangerous over there he didn't listen I want to know as I want to learn as much as possible. What did they tell him? How did they explain it? Did they give detail? Eric McGinnis put names on it. Why are we telling you not to go? Because there is a system of white supremacy, racism, and white people brag about killing black people like you, especially black males. We brag about killing black males. I want to learn what they said. What what information did he ignore from his black family and then proceed across the bridge to be terrorized and called a Negro left in tears? Still learning Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Now we are breaking the rules. So Gus T will be on his best behavior, racially restricted region, St. Joseph Michigan, Eric McGinnis, Black Bodies in the River. Eric McGinnis, if you don't know who Eric McGinnis is and you live in Michigan, take your hind parts to the library immediately. I guess that you don't have to go to the physical location, although that would probably be good too because you could get the uh, news clippings, right, from your area. But get on the library catalog right now especially if you have offspring and nobody, nobody in the house, Eric McGinnis, who's Eric, Eric McGinnis? Man? Get on the library catalog. You can go to the University of Michigan, uh, their catalog, Michigan State, pick your institution, whatever it is, Eric McGinnis, and see how much information they have. They have books about this victim of white supremacy. They have documents. This is even when you can do the lazy route. You can go to YouTube and put in Eric McGinnis, and you will get a lot of information, documentaries, black bodies in the river.
sobriety would be best for many reasons. At minimum, that takes away one. Oh, man, what do you mean, killed somebody? Nigger got drunk. You know, you all are on the reefer and everything else. He just got drunk and fell in the river. We at least take away that one. Black people are sober, so no. Nobody was drunk and stumbling and stammering and just, ooh, slipped it. Ah, That didn't happen. We don't do that. We weren't drunk driving, lost control. Ah, We don't do that. If you're out and about, you see someone being rowdy and hostile, you should be thinking this person may be armed, may have an entourage. If you're not ready to kill and die right now, not no toy gun type of a thing, exit. Call enforcement officers as you are exiting, vacating, as they say. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled, not on your mobile device. We need all of our attention. And we're doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. <sighs> I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.